All right, what's going on, guys? It is time for another episode of the Chasing Waypoints podcast. And, well, we've had a special one today. The 2023 Dakar Rally went off over the last uh, couple of weeks, if you guys noticed. Ain't not a little rally, right? Kind of unknown. Nobody really knows this 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 mysterious 5,300-mile rally that competitors line up for every year. December, or December 31st, January 1st. So, we are back. You guys already read the title. You know what's going to happen on this episode. We are back with the InBevLac interviews. And none other than this time around, wearing the number 105, Mohart. So, we're going to go a little bit out of order here on these episodes. But the game plan is, is that it's a special number for these guys. And we want to make sure we capture that episode number and coincide it with what their adventure was. So, I'm looking forward to chatting with Mo here in just a minute. But man, we got a lot going on. It's our turn. Sonora Rally coming up. Baja Rally in the future. Kota Rally as well. So we've got a lot of stuff. It is the North American turn for the rally stuff, including the Sonora Rally, which is now a World Rally Raid Championship round. So we're looking forward to checking that out in person, hanging out with all the teams down there and uh, just seeing what we see. So with that being said, guys, let's get to it and see if our guy Mo is on the line. Can you hear me, Victor? Yes, sir. Loud and clear. Nice. Yeah. Okay. I, I like. I do like this better than the uh, than the phone. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. So, how many hours have you slept already? Uh. Well. I, yeah. Re-entering the North American uh, stratosphere. Uh. Definitely keeping some odd hours, but uh, been taking some twelve-hour naps twice a day. You know. Uh, it's been it's been pretty real i mean there's definitely some recovery process the flight home might have been the hardest part just to throw a huge wrench in it but uh it's a long one home you know it's 15 16 hour flight and a lot of legends on the flight i had aj jones and seth quintero and um uh, aj's dad was on the flight uh so little rally crew flew to Doha with Andrew Short and the Gazoo Racing Principal and uh, the team principal for South Racing and it's just fun to chat with all those guys. You know, they all look at you and just think you're so crazy for doing what you just did on a bike. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. I think in, in Baja Racing, for those the fans that listen that know more of the, the scoring or something, this is like Class 11 stuff. But you're on a, yeah. I mean, you're still on a fast bike, but literally it's like everybody looks at the Malamoto guys like, you're crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I, that weather didn't didn't help anything. And I think the distance this year was, you know, it's worth fact checking, but I think we got to the rest day this year and we had done all the mileage or distant kilometers of the year prior. And we were, you know, still, I don't know, five or six stages to go. And, uh, Everybody was talking about last year, you know, oh, we were in at one every day and having waffles and da 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 da. And I just think they, I think they just threw some serious sadistic scenarios at the, at the racers this year. Clearly, uh, you know, it was a true test. I, I can, I can say that with clarity. It was a true test. I, you know, it's crazy going to the race as opposed to being at home and staying up all night watching it because I, you know, I, I don't know, even know who did well. Like I'm watching, recaps right now i'm only on stage four or stage five and i'm watching the highlights of the stage where the cars didn't have our tracks to navigate and it just makes me laugh i mean those you know those guys i'm sure those navigators are making a lot of money and they i don't want to say all of them but 
it's pretty hard to watch. They they don't even know how to get through the desert. <laughs> oh man, everybody! I, there was a video that the Dakar posted. I'm like, oh, they took shots at the cars. Yeah, for that I just, one. I think I was literally just watching it 20 minutes ago. And I was laughing so hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. I mean, it's the importance of tracks. But yeah, now once you get out there. The only thing that I think is kind of crazy, and I'd seen it happen before, um, kind of jump around, but last year, one of the complaints was when they flipped the stages and the bikes had to go out on the car side, that the route was pretty gnarly. The, the oh, that, that was my whole race. I'm so slow that my whole race was that description. I mean, I, I got tangled up. I don't know. It took, I, I got off to a real slow start. I, uh, you know, went riding with Colton Ludall behind his house before I left on a two stroke and uh, one of my other buddies Rue and ran into a couple rocks and kind of did my wrists in. And I was like, I can't believe I've already just, I mean, there was a week there where I was like, do I even get on the plane? And so oh, wow. I got to that car and, you know, just kind of was nursing my wrists and they were, I felt, I felt good enough to get on the plane, did the prologue, you know, got last and I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Right. And then last in the first stage and what that looks like is getting caught by the, you know, Nasser and Sebastian Loeb, like a hundred kilometers into a close to a 400 and something kilometer stage. Mm -hmm. And it's fine when one of those cars comes through, like you can use that line, but by the time the side by side, the cars, the side by sides and the garbage trucks come through, I basically couldn't ride in that main line. I mean, I had to make my own line out to the side and that's super slow. And it's a tough lesson to learn because if you're in the line and the pass alert goes off, you have to get out of the line. Well, by the time the rain and the rocks and the garbage trucks make the four foot rut, like it can be really hard to get out of that line. And so that's slow too. So it just turned into a suffer fest for sure. And, you know, it's one of those things like you show up in the original by Motul Bivouac and, and you've got competitors around you and they kind of look at you and they're like, first time. And I'm like, yeah, you know, first time. And the guy is from Romania and he's like, yeah, I've done 19 Red Bull Romaniacs and 13 deck cars and finished 10. And I'm like, yeah, here we go. You know, and the next guy over is surreal Dupree's mechanic. Uh, his name is Benji Merlot, a French national living in, living in Dubai and just surrounded by legends, you know, and I'm, feeling pretty out of place and the first two days in the rocks were just vicious but the whole time i'm like this is you know the bikers last year or the year before i can't remember what year were were asking for the stage to be canceled because of the conditions and i basically had to suffer through those conditions almost yeah. every every day <laughs> it was brutal it was totally brutal i, I think in well in that sense i mean i really yeah, I, I remember. And that was I think that's the the quote that Daniel Sanders will go down in history for calling everybody princesses for, yeah. for requesting that the stage be canceled because it was too rough. Yeah. Well, no, the difference is nobody listens to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, no, but still, I mean, like how. Um, so, I mean, you've you've ran some of the Nevada. Days. I mean, you've you've ridden a lot in Southern California and Baja, California. Oh, yeah, yeah. When you say rough, how do they compare? Is there even a comparison? There isn't. There okay. isn't those, those, you know, I, I feel like we do some riding in Baja and you get tangled up in an old score course and you're like, wow, this kind of sucks. Well, I mean, imagine, uh, there's like, I, I mean, they just don't race garbage trucks in Baja. Right. So like the trophy trucks do plenty of damage. 
but this is next level. I, I don't, and you know, if I don't know how many bikes race score these days, but let's say it's less than 30 and I think I'm being, you know, generous. Yeah. Generous. I mean, we're talking about 137 bikes and quads, you know, so I've got that in front of me. Usually it seemed like, and then the cars come through and, um, there's plenty of those. And then, uh, the side-by-sides come through, there's plenty of those. And then the garbage trucks come through and it's just, that's when it's time to get out of that line. There's, there's just no, there's nothing like, um, you know, it, it was a rough, uh, introduction for me, you know, like you'd hear a, you'd hear an alert on the organization's device and you're like, well, what does that one mean? And the, and the first time you get a truck alert, it's different than a car alert. I think it, maybe it goes by weight. So like you think your bike's on fire, like what's that alert? And next thing you know, you hear a twin diesel turbo spooling up behind you and you're just like, Oh my God, it's a garbage truck. (laughs) It's the, I mean, it's the loudest thing you can hear. And some of those guys, not to spook you, but they like play music instead of blowing a horn. So that at least they, at least you know which side they're trying to get by you on. Mm -hmm. Um, but th- those trucks are scary. I, you know, you're, uh, I mean, I think I've mentioned in your previous, our previous podcast that I'm, you know, I'm scared of trophy trucks. Well, like those garbage trucks are next level. And I just don't really have the ability or the speed to stay in front of them. You know, I, I think most of the guys on the, on the team and everything else could more or less stay in front of the cars, you know, but I, uh, I was really tangled up in the cheap seats. I mean, there's, there's nosebleeds and then there's cheap seats and, and, uh, wow, I mean, what an experience. Those, those, those trucks make some crazy noises and then there's ones powered by hydrogen and they sound different, but yeah, <laughs> crash, crash course and what the alerts are off the, yeah. Not, not necessarily the way you want to find out about it and the alert, no. you know, be playing with no. it in the bivouac, but well, I yeah. knew what the car alert was, you know, I'm like, okay, that means it's, move over, be careful, you know, and then, and then there's this new alert. And I, uh, I have to say that the pass alert mm-hmm. option is amazing. Like there's clearly some algorithm where it knows closing speed from the vehicle behind to the vehicle in front. And if you're just a hundred meters or 50 meters out of the line of the overtaking vehicle, like the pass alert doesn't go off. And okay. if I'm going less than five, something kilometers an hour mm-hmm. so they don't get an alert they get a rider down alert so there's there's some okay. there's some there's some math there you know yeah. I, I don't i have to give credit to whoever's doing that because it seemed to work really well and bill conger had mentioned that to me in a dinner months back and i now understand what he's saying like somebody's fine-tune that thing to the point where it's not just broadly annoying all the time. Like it, it works really well. It seems pretty safe. Yeah. Um, I was zigzagging back and forth across the main line sometimes um, to cut corners and cut some distance. And that's when it can get a little scary. And sometimes it wouldn't pick up the second car. So like if, if a side-by-side blew through and there was one just, not nerfing it, but trying to stay out of the dust and that close. Like I, I would go to cut across and there'd be another side by side there and I wouldn't be getting an alert. So like I, you still had to be heads up and you know, that's on me for sure. But, um, yeah, the, 
it it was interesting to say the least. Yeah, I, I I could see where that that would be some difficult math, but I think that that's really cool because I remember some time ago hearing, um, I believe it was one of the incidents with Robbie Gordon when he was out there and talking about pass alerts and the safety side of it, you know, and the closing speed that you know if you issue a pass alert and you're on it. And that person jackrabbits, they literally were safe where they were. And then all of a sudden they're not safe where they were, where they're going because they jackrabbited thinking that the car was directly behind them when it was actually on their left side, which is the side they decided to pick, you know, to get out of the way. Well, I'm curious if you're talking about score or deck car, because I don't think the cars can push a button. I just think it's an automatic notification. Um, I, I could be wrong, but I, I feel like, you know, the pass alert would go off and I would, I would make a motion with my foot or instantly just, you know, if I was to the right of the main line, I would just keep drifting right out of the main line. And the first two days were in the rocks, mm-hmm. two and a half days were in the rocks. So there was nothing wrong with stepping out of the main line a little bit extra when those guys went by, because you could get knocked out by a rock. I mean, like I, I actually saw how these cars get punctures. I mean, when they're hitting these rocks and the rocks disintegrate like a snowball hitting a brick wall, like Mm -hmm. they would be pulled over in the next kilometer changing a tire. Oh, wow. And I was talking to the Toyota Gazoo principal about it on the plane. He's like, yeah, maybe we should put a camera on you and, you know, because we're trying to figure out how to avoid all this stuff. And, but I don't know what the point of that was, but um, no. yeah, I mean, th- those rocks flying around, like, especially those, those cars are so loose. I mean, those guys can drive, they can drive well, but they don't necessarily give you any, um, you know, they're, they're not going easy on, on anybody. So it's up to me to move out of the line and not get hit by a rock. You know, or, or get sprayed by a rock. And you learn that as score racing, right? Like you never stand on the outside of a turn or spectate on the outside of a turn or park on the outside of a turn. Like your windows won't be there. You know, the, the rocks flying are serious. And those four-wheel drive, everything that's down there, they, they kick out for sure. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's like a snowball machine. <laughs> it's like oh, a yeah. pitching machine, more like yeah, it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's an interesting... So. For the first, you know, I we saw the highlight reels and we saw all of that stuff. The conspiracy theory was is that you guys weren't even in Saudi Arabia. At least that's mine because it, it oh, we were underwater. We were in Atlantis. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was the like for a, a country or an area that gets rain three days a year to get rain four or five days, I think it was. And then the the landscapes, I'm like, are they even in Saudi Arabia? Like yeah, all the was, rocks it, and the mountains. It, it was crazy, you know, and, and I you talk to some of the boys on how to get ready for this race. And they're like, yeah, just go practice long, long, fast, sandy tracks. You know, well, they, they basically turned the first, you know, two to four stages into a squid filter. They were trying to get rid of people and it was difficult. And those rocks were something that, you know, is basically on my, my, uh, learn how to deal with board. I mean, you know, like I remember my first Sonora rally, I came back on, okay, I need to sort the dunes out. And I've come back from this rally thinking I knew how to ride in sand and thinking I knew how to ride a bike. And I really don't, you know, but like, I basically have to put rocks back on the drawing board. And I also need to say that that some of that sand in the end was some of the softest stuff you can imagine. I I don't even know where you go to train for that. 
but that's a whole nother skill level. I mean, you'd be on flat land, let the clutch out and just go down to the hub, you know, and burning through double the, double the gas, just total fuel consumption and, and really difficult. I mean, you didn't know what was hard and what was soft and you'd be going and you'd sink and you'd go and you'd sink and then it'd hook up and then it'd sink. And Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it was, uh, I'm jumping all over the place, but no. yeah, it, it rained a lot. And, uh, when you're racing Malemoto or original by Motul class in a tent, like that variable is, you just can't write some of that stuff. You just can't even, you know, you're, you're under some tent that the OBM guy set up for you, which is awesome to work on your bike. And then, the the canopy needs to drain water and it goes straight into your Malemoto box no. and just gallons of water and you're like okay all my oil filters are wet like everything's soaked it's like oh just it just never ended you know it was you couldn't you couldn't really charge anything in the rain or you had to be smart about how to do it and hide out in one of the semis or go find an electrical plug somewhere and mm-hmm. um you know the, the rain gear was critical i mean it it wasn't necessarily the racing that was hard it's the it's the whole package it's surviving it's surviving the camping, it's surviving the bike work, and it was surviving the liaisons. The Saudi drivers are absolutely insane. They, You're under a speed limit on the road, and all they want to do is race you, take videos of you, and while they're doing that, they're driving you off the road, and it's raining, you know, and, and there's, you, we ended up on a lot of tar seal for some reason that didn't have stripes, so like when it's raining hard, and you're on your stock RFR headlight, and you're trying to just survive and get home and it's pitch dark and you know like the the liaise like surviving the liaisons is an art form absolutely like a sticker of achievement you know like like you could deserve a little medal for surviving liaisons i mean paul like some of the paul had gone down in a liaison um a guy from south africa named Stuart gregory totally ate it on a liaison like the the semis that made those um you know essentially sunken valleys from their weight and he was doing a transfer across a lane in rain to get onto an off-ramp and you know just something went wrong in the crown and he went down and i mean that's that kind of stuff is is so sketchy and i I got caught um they shortened the stage because of weather Mm -hmm. and the directions were yeah just head back towards uh i'd be lying if i could remember the name of the city but, uh, yeah, I just said that way you'll see the bivouac. And I'm like, okay, like no road book, no nothing. Well, I missed the turn. There was no bivouac to see. And I ended up in downtown wherever. Mm-hmm. And it was flash flooding. Like when I put my, you couldn't see the curves because the water was so high. I put, I'd put my boot on the ground and I'd be up to my knee in water. Like the water was literally over my 21 inch front wheel. Holy hell. And you're, and you're fighting a four way stop with no working traffic lights. And I've missed the bivouac and I'm lost and I'm freezing just totally questioning everything I've decided to do. (laughs) And, you know, I ended up going to some firehouse and, uh, you know, like a fireman station and those guys in and I had some dates and some coffee and in my terrible Muslim, you know, accent somehow figured out where the airport was and they turned me loose and, you know, by the time I get back to the bivouac after something like that, you know, the, they're already packing up to move for the next day. And I still have to work on my bike. And I'm like, can you not put my box away yet? Like, I need some time. And they're like, yeah, of course, you know, 
but getting it, I mean, I was just on the back foot from the beginning with everything timing wise. I mean, I'd get to the starting control and by the time I would start, they'd be breaking the whole thing down. Like, I'm like, can you guys just wait two minutes? It's a little demoralizing. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say that, but it was, yeah. just, <laughs> it, it, it was in the, it was in the thoughts for sure. Yeah. I mean, my experience is probably just so different from, from, you know, all the boys who finished well and, um, you know, I, I got, I got to see a cool part of the race. I mean, I always got to see the leaders come through. I always got to see the helicopters and, you know, those trucks sound so wicked. They sound like F1 cars in the dunes. And, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. My experience is probably very different than, than, uh, most of the real, the real riders. But. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, but either way, I mean, it, it, you, you did it the long way. It was hard fought and, and, but you made it to the line and that was only a, you know, only a handful of people have that. Yeah. I yeah. guess uh, Kyle McCoy, our team historian has updated the, the spreadsheet. So there's only 37 Americans who have finished Dakar before. And I started to think about it last night and I looked it up before we talked and I was like, I wonder if the four Americans finishing this year was a new record for bikes. And in the end it wasn't the, the, the there was a year where five guys did it. I'm pretty sure it was a Chris, Chris blaze year, like 2000 and three when he got third five americans finished in the bike class and then there's a handful of other years where four americans finished but uh you know started off with the best of intentions with 11 of us i mean um but uh yeah nice dude that i i can only imagine the the feeling you know getting to the end and i gotta say i saw the video i think it was bill that recorded that video and considering you had just done 5300 miles in 15 days well, yeah. you know, 5,300 miles, what the organization said, the odometer on the bike might be different, but you look pretty fresh for, for that. I didn't go, I didn't go fast enough to hurt myself. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I was out there a lot longer than everybody else, but I was thinking about that too. I mean, would you rather have an RFR with Toby Price's hours on it or an RFR with my hours on it? You know, like I, I don't think I was too hard on that machine and, and it made it to the end. You know, I, yeah. uh, I feel really lucky that I got a good bike and, that's all that stuff's just such a huge part of it. It's so many pieces to the puzzle. And the thing about that finish line is, you know, like not the podium, but the actual finish line. I mean, I got in pretty late on, on stage 13 as usual. And, um, you know, some things started firing up and Dan Bartolucci sent me a text. He's like, you think he was easing me into it. So I was sure, but he basically notified me that it was a reverse start for the, for the next day. And I was like, okay, so it's, it's pissing down rain. And I talked to Bill Conger and the Dakar Classics ran that track for stage 13. So he's telling me how greasy it was. And he's telling me that as it's raining, like an inch an hour, I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh okay. <laughs> okay. So because it's a reverse start, I'm like, I think I'm going to end up starting first. Well, I guess I didn't finish dead last in stage 13. And they started us five wide two minutes apart possibly mm -hmm. and i was in the second wave of five and um i mean i i was probably pretty strung out like jim's uh entourage and jim were with me for dinner for stage 13 after stage 13 and and i was probably an anxiety mess i was pretty stressed out i was like oh, i don't want to lead out in the mud and all that stuff but in the end i got to watch the whole 
the whole class come through, the bike class come through and, you know, watching uh, Toby and Kevin and Skylar just ripping at the end. Like they all kind of passed me in the last six to eight kilometers and our bikes were super muddy. I think our number plates were super marred up. So when I got to the finish line, they all thought the news crew and the media team, they all actually thought I was somebody important. And they came over, like everybody rushed over all the cameras, everything else. And I'm like, Oh, what? And they wiped the mud off my number and they all kind of looked at each other and they all just walked away. And I was like, Oh, okay. And, um, Dicks. and you know what? I mean, oh, it was fine. It was just funny. Like I was like, that's pretty much how it should be. But one of the highlights of that race for me and one of the most important moments was, you know, Skylar took a second to walk away from celebrating with his two teammates and came over and put his arm around me and said, good job, you know, and he was the first person to, you know, outside of the finishing team of the organization, but he was you know, the first person to give me an attaboy and it's just something I'll never forget. You know, he, you know, he was in the middle of, you know, actually, you know, celebrating getting third place at Dakar, which to me that is his best result. I'm pretty sure he's got a third, fifth and a ninth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he, he walked over and and said, nice one. And I, uh, you know, it's the things like that that are important and the memories that I'll never forget. So thanks to Skylar for that. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, and, and I, you know, again, the sense of accomplishment and, and being able to finish a rally like that and, and knowing, you know, that it was all long, hard days, right? There wasn't an easy day in the, there. The thing about that organization is, is like when you think they're being nice and they're giving you a 117 kilometer timed stage, mm-hmm. it's, there's going to be nothing easy about it. It's going to take just should, as long as the 400 kilometer time stage. I mean, you, you and, should and be the, worried. <laughs> you should be worried. Yeah. You should, it's no cakewalk. Right. And so you're, then you're, you're going into the dunes. You're going to cook like a chicken. You're going to pick up your bike 50 times. You're going to get all sweaty and then you're going to get on the road and you're going to ride 500 kilometers like into a rainstorm and freeze to death because you're all sweaty, you know? And so then you got to make sure you're carrying your, your rain jacket and your shells and your this and that. And I mean, it just the whole package is, I don't even have words for it. I mean, you, you, I, I think, you know, talking to veterans and people who've been there and stuff like this, South America was harder, you know, like the, like the altitude and some of those transfers could have been double the length of ours in South America, you know, through, through the Andes and this and that. And I'm, I'm glad I missed all of that, but um, th- this was hard. And, and, you know, I finished stage two and McCoy came over to give me some positive, you know, just, just keep me going, I guess. And, and he's like, you know, Kevin Bevanitas said that that was the hardest stage in Saudi yet. And I was like, you know, don't tease me. I'm like, is every day like this? Cause I mean, two stages in, you're like, this is just vicious. Right. And, uh, and Kyle's like, I don't ever remember it being like this. And, you know, he finished in 2020 and, and I was like, okay. And it did get, once we got away from the rocks, I started having, you know, I, for me personally, more success. Like I, I started getting in and right before the trucks and I started getting in before the sun went down, at least finishing the stage before the sun went down. And like, those were goals. Like I was like, this has to change. I can't get in it. I can't be finishing these stages in the dark. I mean, stage, stage one, finishing in the dark, the last 10 kilometers of dunes was like, I just, 
an experience that I don't know how many people have, like cresting huge dunes with a stock RFR headlight trying to do HP mm-hmm. is something that I don't recommend. And stage two, we finished going down these huge face dunes, like step downs all the way down to the valley floor. And the note's like, yeah, you're going down and you're going down a big dune face. And the moon was out and I could see the main line where the garbage trucks were and the cars had gone through and I was stepped out like a hundred meters. Like, you know, I didn't want to get run over. I didn't want to be there and try to get out of that rut. And the biggest like down at Sonora, you can picture if for those of you who've raced it, like the biggest drop down with the big G out at the bottom like we did five, six, seven of those in a row to finish the stage. And I did it in the pitch dark. And so when you're cresting those bastards, like on a stock RFR headlight, like you're pretty committed. Like you, you get up onto the peak and obviously you don't want to come up a little short. So you get the weight mostly forward and then you realize you can go down it. And then there's all this camel grass and bushes and you don't know if there's a big rut at the bottom. And I mean, I can't tell you how lucky I am just to have gotten through some of that stuff in the dark. And I'm, I'm the, just thinking it's an uh, ocean. You get to the uh, top and you can't see the bottom. <laughs> yeah, the, the, uh, there's a lot of that. It was. I mean, I I'm starting to think my eyes are going bad too. I, I had some pretty bad depth perception issues uh, at high noon in the dunes. Somewhere towards the end, like the sand was so soft and clean and pristine from the wind and the empty quarter that like the definition was just gone. And I got in and I talked to some of the other guys and I wasn't the only one, but it made it hard to kind of do your own line because you needed, you needed the turmoil from the tracks to basically judge your depth perception. Uh And for me, that was a little slow. Like I, I was definitely doing a lot better outside the main line based on how many tracks were there and and for safety as well. But, um, but it was dangerous, you know, I mean, I, um, I probably set off my airbag three times during the event. One was at a G out at the bottom of one of those big dune drops. Like I just basically seat bound so hard at the bottom, my airbag went off and blew the hose off my camel back and all that stuff. And when you're talking about these airbags, you have to think about the jacket expanding and, you know, you don't want to be carrying a screwdriver in your pocket. You could literally kill yourself. And, um, something I would never have thought of. Yeah. Little things. Right. And then, uh, and then another one I washed out into a huge bowl. Um, the landing was like a really steep ski slope, so I didn't get hurt or anything, but my airbag went off and, um, it went off another time. I think I fell backwards, uh, off a dune climb. And it just went off, but uh, that airbag works really well. I, it looks like Alpine Stars is making it available for North America, um, for you know, for everybody else, for consumers. And uh, I'm a fan. You know, I I, I got to update my soft firmware in it, and I just think it gets better and better and better. But uh, it does work. You know, I can say that. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm thinking of uh, in investing in one. Because I mean, yeah. obviously it is an investment, um, but yeah, it, it, there was actually some chatter about that early, uh, a couple of days ago in, in one of the rally raid groups or one of the riding groups. And that was specifically brought up because before, you know, before the Dakar started, everybody was like, oh yeah, airbags, airbags, airbags. But they didn't understand that the airbags were programmed differently for this type of racing versus what you would buy for road going. 
they yeah, are. I mean, we basically had to reach out to the assistant to the director of Alpine Stars in Italy mm-hmm. to get on the secret list to get one. You know, like we had to submit our passport details, our names, if we were doing the race. And so it was basically unobtainium unless you were going to Dakar, at least this rally version, this off-road rally version. And um, I feel like they literally just posted it within the past week that they're going to they're going to make it available and it is very different than the road one and the algorithm is different. And I'm pretty sure this one can sense if you're, you know, if you're ass over tea kettle and it'll go off and uh, you know, it's tricky because if you're trying to hump your bike over a dune and chest bounce the, the nav tower, just to give you that further inch forward, you can set it off that way too. Hmm. Um, but yeah. And, and, you know, each cartridge I think is roughly like $72. Uh, and we would get to gas stops and they would look at your lights. And if you had a deployment, they would expect you to change a cartridge and these cartridges aren't light. So I, w- I was, after a couple of days, I started carrying two on the bike and placement of them is critical access to them. Easy access is critical. And I chose to put them on my nav tower and it's probably the last place you want to put that kind of weight, but that's where I had them just on zip ties and I could pull them out and yeah, and swatch them, swap them out real quick. Are but, they? Are, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Are they pretty hard to swap out? No, super easy. I mean, okay. once you once you do it, it's uh, it's easy. I mean, the the thing about the airbag, at least Malimoto for me, and being as green as it gets, is you know, like keeping up with everything you have to do is is just the trick. I mean, that's the that's how you keep moving forward. So because my first two days were so insanely long and stuff, I wasn't recharging my airbag and I got to morning. I'm losing track of everything. Right. But it was, we were starting in the pissing rain and I think it was either stage three or stage four. And I go to zip up my airbag and check my lights and they're, they're flat. You know, and I'm like, oh, no. So I, I plugged in my airbag for 20, 25 minutes while I went to breakfast. And just to try to get the lights to work enough, just so I could get through technical scrutineering to start the stage. Because they would check your airbag lights every morning before you left, like fully charged. They check you for water and they check that your helmet strap is done up. And I was like, this is how you get eliminated out of the rally. Yeah, on you know, something so uh, so simple. So, well, it's very well. simple, but I mean, just to overlook and you know another thing to another thing to screw up. And yeah, I gotta be careful if my stepmother listens to this podcast because it's not very safe to go into a stage with a with a flat airbag, right? But um, you know, I I basically twenty minutes of charging wasn't enough, and because it was raining, and because we had some ridiculous liaison like. I don't even know, but it was over 300 kilometers, if not 500 kilometers. And I had every piece of clothing on possible. So I'd become friendly with the lady who checked the the lights and, you know, she checked me the first two or three days and, you know, had always done it right every day. And when I had all my rain gear on and every piece of clothing I could wear to get to the start of the special, she was just like, you good? Your lights on? I'm like, yeah, yeah, my lights are on. And I was like, wow, did I dodge a bullet on that one? I mean, I don't even know. Like, I don't think they could let you leave, you know, like yeah. you probably have to sit there until it charged and then you'd miss your, your start time timing window and da, 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 da. And so, yeah. This cascading effect. Oh, it's just the huge curve of compounding errors. You know, you can just, 
you can just start rolling downhill so fast. And, and, uh, I feel lucky to have gotten through that one. And, you know, because my airbag wasn't charged that day, it never went off and it probably saved me some money, but (laughs) that's that's not the point. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, for sure. But you know, the other, the other thing is, is that, yeah, there is a, there is a level of, you never know. Right. Yeah. But then okay. there is a level of that you can control. It's like, hey, well, I don't have an airbag on. And well, this is, you know, like the first year running them. And we've, you know, I've always made writing decisions based on my ability and, and how I'm doing. But, uh, you know, you maybe you're a little more extra careful that day or, or whatever it is. I mean, the airbag doesn't stop stupidity either. So, no, no it does not. Yeah. If you're relying on the airbag to go out and be stupid and then say, oh, I got an airbag that's going to have it, you got another thing coming. So, you know, I'm not necessarily worried that 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 was the, your scenario. You know, I know no, it's good. The, the, yeah. when I ride the hard enduro stuff on my two stroke for training and, you know, all that stuff, I basically have the Alpine Stars version of the airbag with no airbags. So the Alpine Star airbag vest has a ton of armor on it. You're still you're still you're still protected. It just doesn't inflate. Mm-hmm. And I train with basically the non smart equivalent of that airbag and and it's fine. You know, you're, you're protected. You're just not, you're just not super protected. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's, you know, and again, and it's all still about writing, you know, writing smart. So yeah. let's, uh, th- that was something that I was curious about, right? Cause you guys, you know, I know you were running climb, uh, climb gear, the bike. I mean, there's a bunch of like little things that went into this. So yeah. the, the, the most important thing that just comes to the top of my head right now is the climb forecast gear, which is their, essentially they're easily deployable rain shells, pants, and jacket. Mm-hmm. I will, to the end of my life, pay full retail for that stuff when this stuff dies. Like it is, you just have to have it. And it works so well and it's so light and it gets so compact that you can carry it every day. And it's not just some garbage bag, you know, it's like, yeah. it's a real rain shell and it's real pants. I, I you know, also was going against the grain a little bit like they were going they wanted to put holes in my rain jacket to put a bib on the back of it and i was like no i'm good like i I don't want holes in my rain jacket and so i would start these stages with a rain shell on Mm -hmm. for a transfer with no bib on which is against the rules and they kind of just looked the other way and i wasn't the only one but um you know this like kyle and paul and uh, they had put press on race numbers onto the back of their shell. And I would do that next time, but I was really afraid to put holes in my rain gear for a snap for a bib. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of getting off track there, but I mean, I, that climb gear was really good and Alpine stars did boots for us and uh, you know, can't thank them enough. Um, there's no real sponsorship on the airbags. Like we were on our own for that. Yeah. But um you know, the climb gloves, they're the only company I know of that makes three XL gloves. And they're the only ones that don't put my fingers to sleep. So I'm super thankful for them. My helmet was awesome. Um, you know, I, I didn't really tend to run the climb Dakar gear. I ran the Mojave gear. Mm-hmm. Um, and there- it, worked, it worked better for me. I mean, I just, the, the Jersey vents better with the airbag for me. I cook, like, I cook a little bit, you know, I cook like a chicken in the airbag. And so the vented Jersey was key for me. And I had lost a little bit of weight before the race, just riding hard all gear. And so I asked for a size down in pants and 
when they showed up, I was surprised they were over the boot pants and I'd never really worn those before, but since they were the right size, I ran them and in the sand, it was helpful. Like I probably, instead of taking 20 pounds of sand out of each boot at the end of the day, I'd only take out a pound. And, um, you know, I, I don't think a ton of people were wearing over the boot pants, but in the dunes and in the sand, I actually, actually thought it was okay. You know, I, yeah. I, don't, I think I'd do it again, actually, if, uh, if I could do it at Sonora. But. Yeah, that's what I was going to, so cool. So, I mean, there's, we talked about it in the, in the previous shows and leading up to the Dakar and it was, it was a couple of times that that came up, right. Is getting the right gear and getting everything dialed in. And I know what you mean about the gloves, you know, the seam pressing up on the fingertips. Oh, yeah. well, for me, it's the, for me, it's the valley between the thumb and the index finger. When that gets tight, uh-huh. it pulls so hard on the fingertip and the index finger that it put my, it puts my fingers to sleep. Mm-hmm. So, um, for me, it's critical and they only make, 3XL gloves and kind of their more serious gloves. Like they don't make it in any of the lightweight gloves. Mm-hmm. So my gloves, I'll send you a picture of what they look like when it rains, but they kind of bled to death <laughs> and my hands would turn all gnarly. And, um, but they worked, they got me to the end and yeah, my gear setup was good. You know, I, um, I, I feel like we did enough riding leading up to this, that I was pretty dialed. The, the one thing that was critical uh, for me, you know, I, we kept trying to get some gear out of climb on the snowmobile side of things. And there was definitely some supply chain issues and everything else, but I ended up bringing my Dionysi Gore-Tex winter gloves. And I spent a lot of money on those things a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And those things were essential and so not only did I have my climb riding gloves, but I had like my liaison winter gloves and I would not go back without those. I mean, I, I had a little incident one night where I went to get gas and I had the gloves stuffed in my rally tower, one on each side. And when I got back from gas, there was only one there. And I was, I, I don't want to say I freaked out, but I freaked out. Like, and I went back to look for the other one. I mean, we're only, two or three days into the race and I know I need those gloves. And, um, anyway, I retraced my steps in the mud, retraced my steps in the mud and the rain and I couldn't find it. I couldn't find them anywhere. The other one. And uh, a couple days later, they were sitting by somebody's box, both of them. And I just picked them up and I was so happy. I was like, Oh, thank, thank So thankful. You know, I was like, I need these. And I used them after that. I for sure used them. And the other thing that's tricky is, you know, you, you do these liaisons mm-hmm. and you're given a cold weather bag. And what that means is when you get to the start of the special, you take your, your little satchel and you put in all your cold weather gear and that bag goes back to the bivouac and you retrieve it at night mm-hmm. from competitor services tent. And day two, I decide to use it for the first time, I'm like, this seems like handy service. Like, you know, I don't want to carry too much stuff. My bag's missing. Like it's not a competitor services. Nobody else from the team grabbed it. I'm in last. I'm chasing my tail, looking for my mitts and looking for this and looking for that. Now I don't have any of my cold weather gear for the next day. And that kind of stuff is just the stuff you can't write. You know, you're like, I need that stuff. Like Mm what, what now, you know? And as, as my comrades started falling a little bit, I would, I would borrow their mitts and I would borrow this and borrow that. And then, and then one morning somebody's like, Hey Mo, I've got your bag. And I'm like, 
And I was so tired and so late that I actually didn't look at the person's face, but I'm like, you're kidding me. Where was it? And they're like, it was in competitor services. And I'm like, okay, so somebody's gone into competitor services, picked up my bag by accident and they're now returning it, you know, but luckily I got it back. Um, but there was a day or two there where I was like, oh, I, I need that bag. I want that bag back. And, yeah. and it showed up, but you know, it, it's tar- It's hard because you can't really carry two of everything in Malimoto. You just don't have enough room. I mean, you could, and I might take a spare set of winter gloves just to avoid my bag going missing again, just to survive that issue. But that's the kind of stuff that logistically can just really throw a wrench in your spokes. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, I mean, with the weather, it was just so critical to have the stuff that you took then we're relying on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a crazy mix right you don't necessarily think okay i'm going to saudi and i'm gonna get dumped rain on for four or five days of this whole event you know we were told it was going to be cold we were you know fully informed to dress for cold weather but for them to get all of the rain that they get in a year in the four days that we're racing is you know it's just next level next level a horrible sequence of events yeah really really was and so with with that rain you know we it's the curve of compounding errors, right? Like you can't sleep in your tent. You're basically flooded out. So all of us would sleep in the competitor services tent three inches apart, you know? And then you've got, that's where strategy really comes into play. You've got somebody like Paul Neff, who I don't know if you've seen the videos of him snoring, but like his strategy of keeping everybody else awake through snoring really works. You know, everybody else is tired and he's the only (laughs) one who got rest. And you can ask, you can ask Wolfie about it. Wolfie took the video, but you wake up in the morning and go to breakfast and Wolf and Stuart Gregory from South Africa just looked at Paul and he's like, you slept well last night. You know, and Paul's like, yeah, I, I really did. You know, and everybody else is just ready to throw food at him. Um, that a lot oh, of that man. goes on and, and the smell in that room. I mean, you can't even imagine. And everybody had the bivouac hack. So yeah. now, in addition to just sleeping, there was all this coughing going on. Yeah, I was sick about three days in, lost my voice, was really low energy, um, and but came good in the last half. Like everybody else started to get it in the last half, and I felt like I was coming out of it a bit. And you could see it in my results a little bit. I mean, I was riding better and staying ahead of the, the four-wheeled vehicles. Yeah. But that was a true challenge. I mean, there's just no doubt about it, a true test. I I mean, I've had some pretty dumb ideas, but that doing that race might be the dumbest. Well, you know, yeah, <laughs> it, it, well, it, it seemed like a great pretty, idea. <laughs> it's pretty fresh right now. Maybe I'll, yeah. everybody's asking you at the end, you coming back next year? And I'm like, can I have a couple of weeks? Like, I don't, I don't know if now is the time to ask. That question. You, you know, it was, it was interesting. I thought about that before when I was, you know, kind of making my notes, mental notes of, you know, things to ask. And that was actually what, the top of the list question to avoid. <laughs> I need I need a little more time. Yeah, no, I mean seriously, because it, exactly what you're saying. I'm like, no. I mean, I I think anybody you ask that literally just got done doing the Dakar, the answer within weeks of it happening, maybe even months of happening, would you go back? And I would fully expect the answer to be maybe to no. <laughs> I just that's I mean it is what it is. I mean I've I've. You know, I completely different, but I remember when I back when I used to race uh, RC cars semi professionally. Right, this totally not related to this. I mean, obviously, it's not as physically demanding, but 
I remember about this event in, in Arizona and it was like, oh, the dirt nitro challenge and everybody was all about it. You got to go to that. That's the pinnacle. That's like, you know, da, 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 da. Well, when qualifying is at four in the morning after being up at four in the morning and you can't, I was like, no, I'm never coming back to this again. Yeah. yeah. And now I kind of miss it years later. I'm like, oh, that was kind of cool. But, not, but you know, it's kind of the same thing. You push yourself to a point so hard to stay up, to, to do all of these things, no matter what it is, physical demanding or mentally though, mentally that, you know, it's kind of like, mm, yeah. uh, you quite, you question everything. You know, yeah. we, we had a night in Riyadh. I'm pretty sure Riyadh is the capital of the kingdom and they were hosting some political types, you know, VIPs, you know, the, the cleanest robes you've ever seen with the nicest cars, those kind of folks. And, uh, and our the original by Motul camp is very interesting. We're right next to the food tent, and we're right next to the big screen where they do the presentation for the next day. So good news is, is you walk ten feet and you go get your food—not ten feet, but a hundred meters—and you get your food. And on the other side of that building are the showers and the bathrooms. So we're looked after in terms of our logistics. If you're in the back of the bivouac, it, it's like a thirty-minute walk to get to the food tent. So we're lucky that way, but we also, it's like being a captive at the zoo. Everybody coming to dinner comes over to look at the people in the zoo working on their bikes. It's pretty, <laughs> in the it's, pretty dis, it's pretty distracting, you know, like you, there was one night where um, I just couldn't be bothered. I couldn't, I didn't want to work on my bike. There were too many people. It was raining. Everybody was in a very confined space. And I just went to bed and I got up at three o'clock in the morning and I did all my bike work while no one was around, just the, just the people cleaning, picking up garbage. And I did tires, air filter, oil change in about an hour and a half with nobody around. And I was super efficient and I, and it was great. If I had tried to do that the night before in the rain with everybody coming to the petting zoo, it would have taken me four hours, you know? So the, and the, back to my original point when we were in Riyadh and the VIPs were there, they did some presentation for like a national dance and some national music. And they had it on an amplified PA and it basically sounded like they were sacrificing goats for three hours at volume 10. I mean, oh. like when we're going to bed at six, seven at night, I don't know why we were there so early. Mm -hmm. but everybody was like time to get some rest. And then the, and then this, you know, national anthem dance music thing fired up at 8 PM, like 200 feet from us. And you couldn't sleep through that. Yeah. Maybe Paul, maybe Paul could, but you couldn't, <laughs> you could not sleep through whatever those sounds were. And I, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't know where, if you find it on YouTube, what that music sounds like, but I mean, it just seemed so, unnecessary and i don't know why they did it or why it affected us so bad but nobody slept it was awful yeah and it's the kind of stuff you just can't you know a worry about but b like no is gonna happen like what like there's no preparing. plan for that there's yeah. no preparing for that there i don't care how good your earplugs are there was no getting around that stuff yeah God, yeah nuts. All the, uh, all the all the little things, right? The things variables, that you just don't. The variables, all the variables. It, it's you know, oh, we're not doing this because it's raining, and all the you know, yeah, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. It's it's insane. So, so something I'm kind of curious about is 
you know, obviously, you know, really, really long days and, and the gear and talking, you know, and taking care of yourself to, to make it the distance. What does the, what does the bike look like? You know, what, you know, what's that side of it? You know, obviously. Oh, well, so we finished, <laughs> we finished, the, we, uh, we finished stage 14. Mm-hmm. We rode a hundred kilometers to the finish line podium once you do the finish line podium, they impound your bike until 5.30 p.m. And that you can get your bike 30 minutes after they release the results. And if you touch your bike in Park Ferme or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. you're disqualified. And so at like 4 o'clock, I went over to the guy and I'm like, can I have my bike? And he's like, no, you touch your bike, you're disqualified. I'm like, I have to get my shock out of it. Like I have to... I have to pack. I have to go to the airport. And he's like, you touch your bike, you're disqualified. And I'm like, okay, wait until 530, pull my bike out of park for me. The thing would not start. I mean, that's, I don't know <laughs> exactly uh, how I got all the way to the finish line, but I don't know what I did to it or what really happened. But I mean, I think I got the most out of it I could. I, uh, I had to push it. I had to push it over to where I was working on it to take my seat off my seat concept seat home with me and, uh, and pull my rear shock out and then, uh, you know, put it in the shipping crate, but, uh, it, it wouldn't start. <laughs> so I don't know. That was always the trick every morning was, you know, starting your bike. And the, I mean, it was ice on the bikes a couple of the mornings. It was cold and, and, batteries are what they are and it was always just a huge relief when your bike started in the morning um but i other than that the bike looked good i uh i brought my windscreen home a little memory and um my muffler and midpipe were probably a little bit beat up my carbon skid plate was completely destroyed from the rocks there's just no other word for it i i it's it's completely a throwaway item and when you talk to Mason or the Boz car guys, I mean, they were, I think as a team under the mechanics tents, they were doing three skid plates a day in the beginning across the bikes that were racing and mm. mine, mine made it to the end. But if, if you saw it, you'd be like, yeah, it's not really doing anything anymore. It's just, just down to the, it's not Kevlar. There's some core in there. I guess they make car hoods out of it. It's not carbon. Like it, it's carbon wrapped in something that's like this meshy stuff and it looks like Kevlar, but it's not Mm -hmm. all that was completely exposed. I mean, it was just, it looked like somebody had taken a sledgehammer to it at least 65 times. I mean, like just, just beat. Yeah. And I, it makes me wonder if carbon (laughs) skid plates are the right choice when it was fast and Sandy, maybe they were, but in those rocks in the first two days, I, I really think you could do some development there and, you know, maybe a Linden Poskett skid plate, a metal one is the right move. I don't, I don't know. I, um, you know, I was, I had an, I always had an option to just go get another skid plate, but, uh, I did use the same one the whole time and I looked at it at the end and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. I personally, I kind of feel like I would have kept it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you saw how much stuff I flew home with. I, uh, I kind of, I, I, I kind of did. <laughs> I don't, I don't, and I don't need any carbon splinters in my bags, but, All um, right. Yeah. Other than that, the bike was solid. I, you know, some of my teammates were ripping through rims, uh, some pretty serious dents and I didn't have any of that. Um, 
changed the clutch with Paul on the rest day and I didn't need to do that. Clutches Paul was brand new. Mine was probably a little bit more used. I mean, Paul's clutch was so new. I brought it home with me for a spare. I brought mine home too, but um, didn't do brake pads the whole event. One thing I thought about telling you is, so if we rode, how many miles was it? 50 something hundred miles? 5,300. If we we did 5,300 miles, I never adjusted my odometer once. I never pushed a button to change my odometer in 5,300 miles. That's how well the ERTF works. Holy shit. You you don't reset an odometer going into a starting line. It does it for you. It resets it. It resets all the time. It it calibrates all the time, I should say. Mm -hmm. So any, any scenario you're going into a speed zone, uh, um, it doesn't do it for WPCs, but it does it for WPNs. WPMs, WPS, uh, speed start, speed stop zones. And, uh, and I was always on one digit. You know, we always have the like, where are you running one or two when you're in North America? Are you running one digit or two digits after your decimal? And I was on one decimal the whole time, never adjusted my odometer. And Bill Conger told me that. And I, I mean, you know, I have to apologize to him because I just didn't believe him. Like, yeah. I was like, how is that possible? I'm like, when I get to that tree i'm gonna correct my mileage so i know exactly where i am and he's Mm -hmm. like yeah you'll see and i'm like okay and i and i blew it off and he was totally right yeah i mean you're saying it and i'm just thinking like okay well the 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 road books that i've i've done not that it's many at all but it was like almost every you know almost to the point to maybe a fault of mine where yeah i would get to every okay i know i'm here time to adjust the odometer Okay, if you're not here. if you're not syncing with a rally comp or an ERTF, you'd have to do that. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not I'm not saying yeah. nobody at home should do that. I'm just saying that like as, I was just surprised. I was legitimately surprised oh, yeah. that that's how it went. And before I forget, I want to say thank you to Bill Conger because at the end of that event, I'm pretty sure I was blowing bubbles. Like I was just tired and beat, and he totally took me under his wing and and got me to the airport and. Uh, you know, he's like, Hey, I've been here before. Like, let me help you. You know? And I was trying to pay him for the rental car and trying to give him money for a little three hour nap at the hotel. And he wasn't having any of that. And he was just totally my wingman. And, um, you know, it got a little lonely at the end. There wasn't anybody left. And, uh, and Bill, Bill and Wolfie were awesome. Bill and Wolfie are, uh, I call him Wolfie, but you guys might call him Peter, Peter Vicek, mm-hmm. Angelo. I'll call him Wolfie. He, Wolfie and Bill are really good buds. And, um, you know, I, I got to give a huge shout out to Wolfie. He is an animal, literally, and he rode like a beast and he deserves his good results. And he was nothing but encouraging the whole time. You know, he he stopped to help Paul in the dunes and he came through me later in the stage and we got to the end and he's like, I was really hoping you were going to latch on to me and follow me through the dunes and pick up the pace and you could learn from me and watch from me. And, you know, and, and then he would give me a couple tips based on what he saw. Like you just, you got to keep your momentum going. You can't do this and this and, but nothing, nothing other than a true ambassador and a, and a good rally racer, uh, mentor to me. And, uh, you know, he, he deserves, a lot of applause from my end. He's a, he's a good man and he was a good friend over there and we kind of got to know each other over there. I, I feel like we raced against each other a couple of times in the past, but never really got to know each other. And what a great guy, you know? Mm. Um, 
yeah, he's he's a good man. Yeah, that's awesome. I and I do. We're going to be talking to him as well. But yeah, that you know, I guess it's it's the rally family, right? It's a group of you guys that you know everybody kind of bonds together over a common sport or a common thing. Well, not only that, in the Mali Moto Camp, I mean, we we had some guys. I mean, Juan Pedrero. I don't know how well everybody follows the Spaniard guy, but he's been in the top fifteen. I think is most of his career at Dakar and he doesn't have a full ride or a team sponsor or whatever. So they basically stuck him in the Mali moto uh, camp, but he was racing with a moto GP number. So that basically what that allows him is to not be paying a mechanic and not be paying for a server support truck because he doesn't have one. But I think in exchange for the organization, letting him do that, they made a deal where he kind of had to be a mentor to us. So we had all these meetings in the beginning, the original by Motul meetings and, and little briefings. And, and he basically led the first one and he, he looked all of us in the eye and he was like, look, I need you all to understand that we, this original class is the biggest team here. We help each other. Like we're, there's, there's 27 of us. There isn't a bigger team here. Like we look out for each other. We help each other. It's whatever the other person needs. And, and it, and it really hit home. I'm like, you know, that it kind of goes without saying, but like he cemented it. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just, it's true. Like all we have is each other, you know? And um, he also made it really clear that crashing is unacceptable. And that's, you know, he didn't, he didn't want to see any of that. He kind of gave us a slap on the wrist in the beginning, no crashing and stuff, but, uh, but he's a, he's a beast on the race course. I mean, he, you know, he can ride at that top 15 speed and level and, um, got to see a little bit of that, you know, my experience again, where my eyes are just wide open when the, when the hero guys all have huge mechanicals and start, you know, behind me and then come through in the dunes and you're like, ah, look at how these guys are riding. They're so loose. It's just, it's just on the gas, super loose. And I, I just don't have it. It's, it's a little concerning, but uh, it's impressive to see, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know how they do it. I I always go back to uh, this last Sonora rally and, you know, hearing Skylar come in talking about how fun the dunes were and doing these step ups and all of a sudden, and then the guys that come in after him, Going like we were trying to follow his lines, but you know, <laughs> what the hell, you know? And I'm like, wow. Yeah, and I and I think he was using some of those lines just for practice. You know, I mean, I, I like I don't think that might have been the most efficient way through the dunes, but you know, he just needed to test himself a little bit. Uh-huh. And and with that being said, like I, I after doing Sonora Rally and Baja Rally this fall, mm-hmm. you can't imagine how hard these stages are at Dakar. So if you're getting to the gas stop at Sonora and you're like, Whoa, that was hard. And I'm over my head. Like you're not ready to go to Saudi Arabia. Like you are, you have no idea what is really going on over there. And I thought I might, but I didn't. And I don't know how to ride in the rocks. I don't know how to ride in the sand. Like it is insane. And so some of the people who've raced the Baja Rally might remember the rock section on the Heaven to Hell Road book from the coast up to the transfer road. And I think that was 25 kilometers long. Well, imagine it being 400 kilometers long. I mean, like that was the first stage. And uh, 
I don't know where I was going with all that, but it's, it's hard. The stages are hard. Uh, you know, Robbie Gordon always talked about, imagine doing a Baja 1000 every day. And now I understand what he's saying. And I haven't, I haven't done a Baja 1000. So I, I gotta be a little careful with like what I think I know, but you know, I know how hard that race course can be, uh, after, you know, after riding in it, after everybody goes through it. But, uh, yeah. The var- the variables are just something that's indescribable. Uh, yeah, I've well, I've I can say I've done it in a in five sixteen. I've done it in a couple different classes, but yes, it does get really shitty really fast. <laughs> yeah, and the garb the garbage trucks make it exponentially worse. And I think that if we were going through going through numbers of participants that. There's a lot more traffic on a Dakar course than a score course. And I, I could be right. wrong, but I, I, uh, the, just the turmoil, yeah. the turmoil in the track is severe. Very, very severe. Well, not only, not only that, like, I think like, okay, you know, kind of what you're saying. So trophy trucks, when I first started racing, were on 35s, right? And, yeah. and 35 uh, inch tall tires, you were like, that was the setup. And then it went 37s and then they allowed 42s and then or 40s. And then I think they may be upping it again. But people at race score know that if they've been on those race courses, the holes just keep getting deeper and deeper. Yeah. Well, if they're at 40 inches, the the garbage trucks, you know, as we're calling them, I believe their tire size is like 48, 48 plus. Well, all I can tell you is it takes three guys to move one and change one. That's why there's three people in those trucks. <laughs> and when you're standing next to them, they're up to my Adam's apple. I mean, like, you know, yeah. they're, they're it, it's it's uh <laughs> And they're heavy, you know, yeah. I, oh, they're heavy. Yeah. And then they, and the thing is that they move. So they have, I mean, the, obviously they're diesel engines. I think they, they have, they have to be over a thousand horsepower and that's on a diesel engine. So the horsepower isn't the impressive number. It's the torque. Yeah. I, I should watch like one of the overviews on the Red Bull TV, but I, I could be twin. I'm pretty sure it's twin turbos and oh, yeah. I think they're way over a thousand. There might be two 1000 horsepower motors. I don't even know. Yeah. But they, when they spool up and they're behind you, you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> suddenly right. the trophy trucks don't seem so intimidating. Yeah. Maybe even no, borderline exactly. cute. <laughs> I, yeah. I think that, I think that, you know, if you're going to compare a pass alert at score and a pass alert at Dakar, that the Dakar one works really well and it's safe. And, and, and my anxiety over all that was, was pretty well kept to bay because the pass alert function and the algorithm that it uses works so well. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I do have to say that another, th- another thing I learned about that car, which, you know, I, I really wanted to take somebody over with me, uh, as a handler, like in case something happened to me so I could get home, you know, mm-hmm. like somebody to just get it done and get me home. And the organization, if you get hurt, mm-hmm. the organization flies you home business class and they fly you home business class with, with a rep. Um, and I didn't know that. So Kyle and David flew home, uh, under the ASO's flight, Mm -hmm. uh, scenario. I don't think they chose to go with a rep. We as a team aero team were sponsored by MedJet, Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure Paul used his coupon to get home. Judging by the pictures I saw this morning, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think he would have done okay on just a commercial flight. So our MedJet sponsorship worked out great for Paul and uh, hugely important. And I think that that is a smart investment for, for anybody, um, you know, leaving the country and racing or riding 
overseas somewhere. I think I think that uh, you know Paul needs to give the final report on on how that all worked out. But it would be a mistake for me not to say it. Sure looked like it it was very relative for our team for what you guys did yeah a a good a good thing to have and uh and i didn't need to take that handler and that person to get me home i mean uh, you know based on all that information but um well having the support i think that's the big you know now now like you said now you now you know you know you you, that the organization backs you up and and that and that's very surprising i mean well dude the french are i so i i've we've touched on it before and i kind of steered away from it but in the past with my sailing background, I've really struggled with the French. Mm-hmm. And after this event, I have nothing but respect for them. You want to talk about a well-oiled, well-tuned machine? Yeah. The ASO is absolutely killing it with their logistical expertise as well as the safety side of things for this event. There can be a helicopter anywhere on the course in five minutes. And there are enough of them, you know, believe me. But they use those things like taxis. And... Um, I, I was just thoroughly impressed with the way that they run things. There, there are situations where you you ask a yes or no question, and there's three answers. I mean, I'm not going to say it's all perfect, but mm-hmm. um, in terms of how they approach getting things done and their logistics, they, they absolutely get an A plus. It's it's you're you're basically moving this city around the kingdom, and and they have thought it all through, you know, they've been through it enough that it's just very fine tuned. And I was super impressed and everybody at the start lines and the finish lines and the original by Mo tool, uh, you know, crew basically, which is who looks after us and unloads our boxes and sets up the tents and puts the fluids out. Like they couldn't be any nicer. They couldn't be any friendlier and they couldn't be any more helpful. Like absolutely all stops pulled to be awesome. That's right. And, uh, you know, I, it took a couple of days for the, the finish line crew to warm up to me, but, uh, by the end we were all friends and, you know, they make you a hot tea when you get in and, and make you some food and nice. happy to see you. And, um, yeah, it was good. It was good stuff. Man. It's, I mean, it's, it's a crazy, you know, it's an absolute crazy journey. And well, Yeah, it is. It is an absolute crazy journey. And the other part of the ASO, I don't know if people realize, is they are the same organizing authority that organizes the Tour de France in July for the bicycle race. So they have two events a year, and they're six months apart. So I'm pretty sure it's all the same helicopters and stuff, but um, those are the two events that they do. And I think that they do a really good job. And they don't pull any of the, you know, yeah. they don't, they don't hold back. And that's crazy. It's, you know, two events a year and, yeah. and the statement on that is the only two events a year that they do. And they're both world renowned events. Oh yeah. The absolute <laughs> Everest, Everest of each, of each, uh, discipline. Yeah. yeah. And you know, what the French do in sailing with the round the world records and everything else, like I, I just have a lot of respect for them. It's pretty sadistic. The whole thing is super sadistic, but they boundaries are not really an option and they really <laughs> try hard to break a lot of boundaries and they and they do it, you know. They well, you know, and to what you were saying earlier and, and about what you're saying now is 
I, I heard in another interview that uh, one of the competitors, I think it was Ricky Brabeck, that wrote a letter to Costera, or I believe yep. that's how it went yep. down, saying, hey, this is like this year was, you know, too easy. And and, and that was for 22. I, yeah, I wish I'd done it last year. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> so yeah. no, so he, listened, like a, he listened. No, he listened. And <laughs> I don't think that I don't think that Ricky was the only one who. Who did that? No, who, who suggested that they make it hard like it used to be? And you know, we talk about the twenty-three edition being somewhere around eighty-five hundred kilometers or eighty-eight hundred kilometers. Mm-hmm. And a good friend of mine is now super into Dakar, and he's been locked up during the whole race with COVID on the internet. Da da da. Watch the history of the Dakar Rally, and you know it's just finished the race and he's like you got off easy i'm like what are you talking about he's like well back in the day it used to be fifteen thousand kilometers you know paris to cape town and i'm like i basically just wanted to hang up on him i'm like okay you know (laughs) whatever whatever (laughs) like you're right and it's not as hard as it used to be and you know they used to have to navigate in sandstorms when there was no real navigation but just line of sight on a tree and this and that and you know it's definitely changed and I, i don't i know that um you know, I'm just really glad to have made it to the finish line. I, uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm glad Ricky sent that letter to David, but, uh, <laughs> well, it definitely seems like a, be careful what you wish for moment. <laughs> oh yeah. No, they listened. They listened for sure. I think that the whole, I think that there's some smoke and mirrors, uh, in terms of the truth and the facts, you know, like when we got to stage two and they said it was 26% rocks and it was like 97% rocks. Everybody's like, why would you do that to us? Like doesn't, (laughs) it doesn't seem fair to put that in the stage briefing because it's just not true. And then to say, tell us that they're cutting back on liaisons and stuff. Like they didn't do any of that. You know, we were, we were, we would ride 500 kilometers in one direction, spend the night, in the rain do a 130 kilometer special or something like that. And then do another 500 kilometers back to the bivouac. We started at the day before. So a thousand kilometers on the pavement to race 137 kilometers, just, you know, you'd get back and somebody's like, how do you feel about that? I'm like, I'm like, it just seemed unnecessary. You know, like, I don't, not saying it's not supposed to be hard, but, you know, you're just going through all this rideable terrain. You're looking at everything going, we could be riding through this. Like, why are we slogging on pavement? You know, the head, the head does, the mind does funny things out there. I was in the middle of nowhere in the dunes and uh, must've been getting hot. And I swear I was hearing uh fire truck sirens, you know, and I'm like, there's nothing around. What is wrong with you? Like mm-hmm. you're, you're in the, you're hallucinating. You're already great. You know, yeah. no, uh, tough tough race for sure oh i can yeah it by tough by definition i mean that's like the definition of it and yeah and then to revisit our earlier podcast i mean do it with the worst tire in the world (laughs) like (laughs) the michelin desert desert race and the soft sand i i there's I uh, don't even have words. It's just such a mistake. Yeah. I almost, you know, that, that was something that I was thinking about earlier, right? With the amount of sand that they had now, the ability to run, like say, okay, well for these stages, because we're no like, for instance, Hey, we're headed into the empty quarter. Not that you're going to run a paddle tire, but it's like, 
Well, you could run the, you could run the Michelin Desert Race Baja tire, which is what Skyler refers to as a knobby tire. Mm-hmm. And I was super jealous of Wolfie because he was running one. And he's like, well, let me show you why you don't. And he, sh- and he pulled up a photo and the thing basically explodes on the 500 kilometer transfer after that the carcass creates so much heat that it kills the moose. So his moose looked like a Swiss cheese grater. You know, it, and I, I mean, you got to find the balance between durability and, and performance. And there it's either, or there's nothing in the middle about those two setups. And, you know, our, the, the company we got the bikes from basically would not give me the option of the Baja tire, the knobby tire, because he didn't want a failure on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. And I still don't know all the right words or how to get through it or do it properly or whatever, but I just can tell you that the, that Michelin Desert Race is the worst tire in the world. And it's not the worst tire in the sense that it, it didn't get me to the finish. I just mean that like when you're trying to get up things and you're trying to turn and it's just sliding and, you know, it's just, it's awful. <laughs> yeah, not not the tire you want to be on. No. And to revisit another conversation we had, I mean, I did that whole event with no rim locks. You know, you like you don't you don't balance your wheels, you don't put rim locks on your tires and your setup. Um and that continues to surprise me. I you know, I guess now I'm a believer, but I yeah. gosh, I was I was nervous going into it about that- all that. It's crazy because I, you know, I think about like, so two things already that I've learned. One, the, you know, the, the repeaters, the ERTF stuff that is so accurate. And then, and then to me, it's like, I was wondering about that because I was thinking, okay, well on my, you know, on my 501 that I'm setting up, it's like, do I, you know, I want to go with the mooses in it, but then I got rim locks, but how do you do the rim locks and all this stuff? So that blows me, that blows my mind. They, yeah, you don't run a rim lock in it. You don't run a rim lock. I mean, I I guess for your five hundred one, I could tell you that you could run the Michelin Enduro Medium ninety one hundred up front with an M sixteen Moose and not do a rim lock for sure. The Rally Replica rear rim is wider than your five hundred one, and when I talk about a rim lock, sorry, lack of rim lock in the rear wheel, mm-hmm. it's with an M two. Michelin moose, which is the moose that's made for that Michelin desert race tire. So I, if you were going to set up your 501 with a Metzler MC 360 and an M14 moose, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're going to have the same positive result of no spinning, but it could be worth trying. I just wouldn't do it during a race first day, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's my, like I was looking at, uh, there's another company that just uh, started hitting the Instagram and, and that I've been seeing called Lucioli that does mm-hmm. a, it's a seven millimeter thick tube that has two rim locks integrated into it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, I'm like, I'm, I'm curious about that setup. Uh, maybe not so much on the 501, but maybe on the 790 where, you know, yeah. I know for sure I can't run mooses. I mean, I could, but it, I mean, it's an adventure bike. It's not a race bike. So I need something that'll do miles. I just, just, I just think that with two rim locks, you're, you're definitely going to have to balance that wheel. Oh yeah. No, I, I'm so OCD about my, I'm going to buy a balancer just because yeah. 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 On an adventure bike, it makes a difference. I would even do it on a 501, but I wouldn't be like, you know, religious about it. Like, oh my God, I dropped a weight. You know, I need to rebalance this in the pit. 
Well, I, yeah, I hear you there. I, but I, over the past eight years of, you know, doing this and being under Mike Johnson's wing or tutelage a bit, you know, when I started balancing my wheels, the longevity of the tires and the mooses just went through the roof. Like they don't, they don't shark fin on the liaisons and they wear evenly and, 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 and in the end makes your ride more comfortable, especially when you're slabbing it for a couple hundred Ks or whatever. You know, and it's, to me is exactly like what you just, what you just said is that, is it going to make a difference in the dirt? No, the bike doesn't care. No, but not at bike, all. But the front tire being out of balance and vibrating and already adding to the vibrations of the bike all the way up to the handlebars, that's an issue because your oh, suspension yeah. is involved to deal with an un, a tire that's not balanced. That's how true. I see it. Well, it's true. And and the, you're reducing fatigue. I mean, when you talk about riding across the kingdom, you know, anything you can do to reduce fatigue even as Baja and Sonora you know you don't you don't want to put your hands to sleep on your 100 kilometer transfer in the morning before your race you know you want your hands to feel good when you get there and the vibration to be minimal and mm-hmm. it's it's all it all adds up it all adds up your seat has to be comfortable your grips have to be comfortable your hands have to be warm yeah and everything everything so that was uh you, you kind of touched about it earlier and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the the bike setup so you guys got the bike uh, where you rented it from, right? With yeah, the, with uh, the we got we got the bikes from Boz Dakar, mm-hmm. a company that um, Kyle is super familiar with. A company that Skyler, as well as Mason, have have used and gone through. And I think it's pretty safe to say they're the biggest KTM satellite factory team. So, like, it's a feeder team for the pros. You know, mm-hmm. Bradley Cox is on that roster. Uh, he didn't have a very good rally, but uh, you know. They are trusted, they, you know, stamp of approval. They, they know what they're doing. They have the right people in place. Um, them absorbing the ARO team definitely taxed their logistics. I mean, they, they basically were sending 11 bikes, six of which were under their mechanics tent. And then there were the five of us characters, you know, on the peripheral side of that. Um, but good good group of guys you know um when it was question time they they understood that you know we might need help and they would stop what they were doing and answer that question and huge shout out to those guys yeah so i rented a bike from Mazda car the five of us did and um i think i had a 2021 rfr that had about 30 or 40 hours on it um and it performed great, you know. I I don't know what state it's in right now. I don't know if it's going to start for <laughs> for part when it gets it back to the Netherlands. But treated me right, you know. Good good machine. Yeah. A lot of hours on it now. I'm a little bit more than everybody else's at the premier class, but that's okay. Hey, well, you know, like you said earlier, I, yes, I would check. I would I would put an offer in on your bike versus <laughs> one of the other bikes for sure. And yeah. so, that's interesting to me, like. You so you rented the bike from them. Um, you've already mentioned it a couple times, but your rear shock. So you showed up, the bike was there. You brought your shock from your RFR here stateside. I did because I've, you know, um, I, you know, I'm a big, I'm a bigger, I'm on the bigger side of things. I don't think that I, I don't think that Mason settings or Skyler's settings would really work for me or a stock standard RFR shock is really 
for me in particular. So did some work in Valley Center down in San Diego County and, um, you know, made some adjustments. And mm. David Pearson was part of that tuning process. We took our two RFRs to the suspension guru at the same time. We kept mine stock. We did a lot of work on David's in terms of testing. And uh, I did the Baja Rally on a stock RFR shock mm-hmm. and then asked for some help. It was some, you know, next generation shim stacks based on David's setup. And I ran that setup at Sonora. Mm-hmm. So Baja Rally was a stock shock. Sonora Rally was an altered shock. And after Sonora, we did some more testing and did, you know, did a full refresh on that shock and just decided I should bring it with me. I, you know, had, had confidence in, in where we got with it and uh, took that. And, you know, it's renting a bike is always uh, interesting. And, you know, if, if money wasn't an issue and the funding was there um, and I get in a good mood and decide to go back again, I would probably try to air freight my machine, not ship it ground because you lose it for four months there and four months coming back. You don't have your bike for eight months, but, um, I love my bike at home and, you know, eliminate all the variables if I take it. So, you know, you you get off the plane two days after Christmas and you're basically straight into it with your rental bike. And, uh, you know, maybe, I mean, I don't know, you know, maybe I should have gone to a prior FIM event and worked on, you know, ridden the bike and tested it and worked on it and say, okay, I want this, this, and this for Dakar or gone to the Netherlands and done the bike prep and been there for it to learn the bike a bit. But, then it's probably just cheaper to put your bike in a box and ship it. You yeah. know, I, I don't know. I don't know all the right, you know, logi- I love logistics and stuff, but, mm-hmm. uh, the yeah, next, the, the, the next right step, the next step is you probably want to have ridden your bike prior to the event, <laughs> whatever that looks like, whether it's your bike or whether it's your rental bike, you, you probably want to take it for a spin. You know, Ace did some tuning with, dust deuced company i'm not sure quite sure how to say it mm-hmm. prior to christmas and um and i think that was i was a little jealous you know i was like gosh that seems like a really good idea mm-hmm. you know um but you know i booked my own travel i, I did myself in on the, all that so just things things learned for next time or anybody else um okay I, I, you know in you mentioned that and to me it's uh because i know like the suspension side of it um you and a couple other and not to downplay what other people do but i know that that you particularly and uh and david about suspension and and making sure it's just like just right and how big of an effect that has on the bike and then that's what i was really curious about was like okay well you go and pick up this rental bike that's valved likely like any other ktm like it's going to be better than the showroom bike because oh, yeah. it's a little the, bit more dialed in, but it's not RFR, your bike. Yeah, the RFRs have a lot of thought put into them. I mean, they, they're they not cutting corners in assembly or using cheap parts. You know, you're, you're paying for a premier race machine. So stock, they're, they're really not that bad, you know. But like in my scenario, I didn't take my forks. So was I 
am I battling an imbalance between what my forks are at home and what these forks are doing? You know, like, like I think my rear shock is good because it's been good at home for three months, two months, you know, but is, are the issues I'm facing? Are they because of these forks? Like, I don't know what's in there. I don't know oil levels or anything, you know, you have that O-ring on the slider tube and you, you can judge your travel off of it. And, you know, I bottomed, I, I sent that O-ring to the base of the stanchion almost every day, you know, and I never had time to add fluid or anything. And maybe I should have made time, but uh, I definitely put the skid plate into the ground a couple of times. I mean, I used every millimeter of travel that bike had to offer and then went to the stops a couple more than a couple of times. And, um, you know, that was my shock and their forks and, you just don't know what you don't know. You know, like I didn't build that bike. I, I didn't prep it. I, I didn't, um, I've never been into the forks that they had over there. Um, and I just, just had to run it. And that's, you know, back to just maybe you should ride the bike before you get there. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, and you know, I'm picturing like what you mentioned earlier. I'm like, well, would it be, you know, is it, is it because it's the whole picture, right? Like the cost of renting the bike versus the cost of shipping your own, your own bike over there. And then the cost of renting the bike verse and, and then saying, okay, well, I'm going to buy a case, you know, I think WP has the case, like a specific case for it, but I'm just going to bring the suspension from my RFR that I've spent all this time adjusting and dialing in yeah, and bring that gotta, with me. I got to be honest. You can go to Harbor Freight and buy their two gun rifle case mm-hmm. on a parking lot sale weekend for 69 bucks. Mm-hmm. And I sold mine to Tony Palandrini, but I still borrow it and use it. But you can, you could get your suspension across the pond, you know. But if I showed you how much stuff I traveled with to get there, you'd be like, yeah, I understand why you didn't need another thing to yeah. get there. Well, I saw the bags on the way back. Yeah, that was brutal. That, uh, <laughs> I, mean, I, I think that, I a, what I didn't post was that cart capsizing at least three times. Like it was just so heavy. I, I literally <laughs> fell over three times. And, um, you know, maybe there's a way to ship stuff and ship suspension and ship this and ship that. But I just, that's all really high risk. I remember um, Customs and Border Patrol like ruining Linden's forks because they like took the top caps off with a adjustable pliers and took a, you know, a pick and like scratched off, scratched like the coating on this and that to see what was in there. And wow. It's, it's tricky. It's just the balance. I mean, if, if you're relying on that stuff, it's like losing my cold weather gloves and my cold weather bag. Like I was relying on that. So if you're relying on your suspension and it doesn't get there or it's damaged or who knows. Yeah. Yeah. That's another, yeah, that's another one. Then I think like, okay, well maybe, you know, if you're on the boss, boss BAS team, you know, okay, we'll ship it to the Netherlands and then have them on like, Hey, this is, you know, pick my bike. Yeah, but out it, of this. But it, need, it needs to be there before, it they goes ship to it. the ship in Marseille. Yeah. So then your bike's on blocks. You know, I think you have some experience with that in your garage for uh, X, yeah. amount of, <laughs> X amount of months. And you're like, oh, this sucks. Can't move this thing. I need to move around in my garage. And yeah. it's tricky. You know, the suspension was probably fine on the Boz bike. Um, I asked him to put my rear spring on, um, you know, months before we left. And, and it was set up for my weight. Um, but I just chose to take my shock and uh and i did put it in and i think some of those guys were shaking their head a little bit at me at the boss tent but um you know i put their shock back in at the end and and it seemed to be okay yeah um, nice 
Well, I, you know, I think that's the, at the end of the day, you're going to, you're going to have so many days running that you, you want to give yourself the best fighting chance. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, to be comfortable, I, you know, I took some tools with me that I, that I like to use at my shop at home. I brought my muffin tray for all my little bolts and I brought my big hot plate thing you find at the buffet. And like when we were changing clutches, that was critical. I just would put clutch parts in that thing instead of in the dirt or on some rag and, you know, a little toolkit that I put together with my Linden organizer and, and, um, you know, the iPod was a big thing for me, just some music to make me feel like, back in my shop at home and stage three was so vicious for me getting caught by everybody that I actually, I mean, I don't, my stepmother's not listening, you know, but I'd like, I think I put music on for the last 150 K's of the stage. I was like, I need to, I just need to change the tune in my head. You know, like I, I need to, I need to distract myself and it's, it's whatever you can do at that point to get to the finish line for somebody like me. And um, yeah, you know, just, anything to increase comfort level and reduce fatigue and, and increase mental stability, you know? Well, this is, I mean, this sport, you know, you're what you just said, right? You're, you're on the liaison, the stage is done. The stress of the stage is done. The timed part of it, you know, the semis or the garbage trucks can catch you all they want, you know, on the road section. But it, it was funny because there's a video that I saw the other day and that that was specifically talking about that. Or I was watching it that, you know, your, your, the mentality and the mindset and the downward spiral starts off so vague and then increases so quickly right in in negative thoughts and stuff like that and so oh you question everything victor you question you question your existence you question like this you just you're like this is what i'm doing for fun like this is what i choose to do with my money and my time off and that's a and that's a vicious motivator for somebody like me you know like i uh, I was Jeff Bezos. I would have called the chopper. Come pick my ass up. You know, like this is dumb. And and then you're like, okay, well, let's say I did want to pull the pin. I still have to get out of the desert. So why not just finish the stage, you know, and you finish the stage and you feel fine. And you're like, there's no reason why I can't continue. So you continue. But like, I almost, you know, I can't really afford to go back. So in terms of sick motivation, I just had to get it done. Like I, and there were, there were guys in the Malimoto thing who, you know, pull me aside stage day five, day six. And they're like, look, I didn't finish my first Dakar because I was soft and because I just mentally failed. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and how did it go when you got home? And they're like, I was the worst human in the world. I was yelling at everybody. I was unhappy. And I'm like, so you wish you'd finished it. And they're like, yeah, I wish I'd stuck it out, you know? And, and you hear those stories and, and, and it helps, you know, it, it, you realize that you have to achieve the goal or you want to achieve your goal. And so you apply yourself. And I, mean, I don't think I could have made it any harder on myself. I think I spent twice the time on the bike that the premier pros did, you know, like if, if they're, if they're doing it in 40 something hours and I did it in 80 something hours, I mean, that's, you couldn't make it much harder on yourself. Um, but I also, you know, like I can't refinance my house every year. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to, you know, I, I really did have just one shot at this and, and not only could I not afford to go back, but like I couldn't afford to get hurt. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that affects my speed. I'd love to tell you that I'm faster, but I really don't think that I am. And, um, 
Yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sick motivation. It's a sick motivation when you can't afford to go back and you can't afford to crash. And, and you just have to remember that all you have to do is get to the finish line. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, it worked out. I, I feel really lucky that my bike was healthy and everything else. You know, I, I never envisioned doing that without my teammates. Um, I know there's going to be attrition, you know, but if you have a positive vision or you think about the positive things or the positive goal, you know, at least one of them was there with me at the end and, uh, it got a little lonely, you know, it got a little lonely and I, I couldn't have done it without all of them. Kyle McCoy's statement in our feature was correct. You know, out of, when you, if you took all five of us and put us into one rider, it would actually be a pretty good rider. And, um, I don't know which part of that rider I am, but, uh, definitely not the fastest out of the group. And, you know, I was missing those guys. I mean, we, we did it together in the end, even though they weren't there and I have nothing but thanks for all the support. You know, I couldn't have got through rest day without David Pearson helping me. Um, you know, when I got in, it's raining and it's, I don't even know, 830 at night. And he's like, you've got 10 minutes to submit your laundry if you want to get it cleaned, you know, and we bought these vouchers like days before. And you're like, you're soaked to the bone wearing everything you have and you're cold. And it's like the last thing you want to do and the last thing you have time for. But, you know, he said, help me just, just the support, you know, yeah. it, it was good to see. And, you know, we were a team and if somebody needed something, we did it, you know, and, um, I mean, I started losing them all pretty quickly, but, um, yeah, so I, I hope I, rep, I hope I represented them and well. You know, I mean, um, I, I think it would have been bad if all five of us hadn't made it. I think it would have. I mean, it's a true statement to that race because it's it's the hardest race for a reason. It's hard. But. Yeah. No, I mean that's you know, like I said, there's a bucket. Of, the nobody. I don't think anybody should be heading to their first Dakar or, or even first five Dakars or whatever number you want to put on it. I don't think anybody should be heading to the Dakar thinking I'm going to go win this thing uh, flat out without have previously finished it and and previously done, you know, done well at the event. And I, by I, well, I, I mean getting to the line. Yeah, I became friends with uh, Mohammed Belushi, mm-hmm. guy from uh, Dubai. Mm-hmm. He runs Dubai MX and he has a teammate or a really close friend from Kuwait, number 71. And, uh, excuse me, I pulled in on a 500 kilometer liaison. Those guys pulled into some food stand and I couldn't read anything. And I was like, can I join you guys? Like, I'm just cold and tired and I'm falling asleep on the bike. And and I became friends with these two guys and Muhammad, he also goes by Mo. He was racing the GP class number 25 or 35. Mm -hmm. And, um, and those guys became friends, you know, and, uh, and they kind of, you know, asking some questions at, at the food stop and have you done Dakar before? And I'm like, no. And they're like, and you chose to race the hardest class your first time. And I'm like, well, it's complicated, but it's the class I could afford to race. And no Americans ever finished it before, you know? So there's five of us just trying to throw as much of it at the wall as we can to s- see what sticks. And, and they kind of looked at each other and they looked at me and they just went back to their food. And I was like, yeah, this, these guys know because they've been here before. Like, <laughs> like we're not even halfway through it. And they're like, this kid has no idea what he signed up. What for. he signed up for. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and I don't think anybody does. I mean, I can listen to everything everybody says, all the mentors, all the coaching, and until you realize what they were saying, or maybe I'm just a hard learner, you know, but um, I do have to say that, you know, Andrew Short was there and he was under the Can-Am South Racing tent uh, navigating for Molly Taylor from New Zealand, who's a World Rally WRC driver. And he was so good to me. He would check on me all the time. And, you know, I'd ask questions about some navigational things, ERTF or, or Dakar Roadbook specific. And he's such a skilled navigator that he knows the answer. So it was actually saving me a lot of time. But just no no ego, no boundaries, super helpful, just a true ambassador for the race or for the for rally. And uh, even though he's in a car, you know, like, he, yeah. you know, he was – when it was time to be in the petting zoo and people come over for dinner, he was like the only person I was happy to see come through because it was helpful. Not, you know, like I was super tired one night and I was trying to put a new wheel on my bike and it was, it was backwards. You know, I had the sprocket and the just, you know, I had the whole thing in backwards and he just kind of looked at me. He's like, you tired? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay, your wheels backwards. I'm like, all right, thank you. You know, like just, just blowing bubbles. And he was, he was awesome. He was, uh, you know, he'd give me advice over the event and, very much appreciated the uh the the tent that he was racing under the the south racing can-am scenario Mm -hmm. uh it's a little bit of a side blip right but this team had 26 side-by-sides i call them angry golf carts they had 26 golf carts racing under their tent they had 200 people in their camp between mechanics cooks uh fabricators drivers navigators and logistics people, each buggy, each side-by-side golf cart Mm -hmm. is paying, you know, $300,000 to race. There's there's 26 of them. So that's like an $8 million project. You know, when, when you talk about score and trying to eliminate bikes and you talk about Dakar and it's all about money, like the money isn't in the bike class at all. Like it's, you know, they, they, they want that truck and buggy and golf cart money, you know, because it's, it's real and it's big. And not only were there 26 of them, mm-hmm. you know, at 300 grand a piece, there's a waiting list a mile long. Like people can't get in. And that's true for the bikes as well. They reduced the bike numbers this year because I think they were trying to speed up the starting times, earlier starting times for the bikes and the, I'm sorry, for the cars yeah. and the trucks and, and with that being said, I feel lucky to have gotten my entry accepted. I, I think Boz Dakar was a huge part of that. I think that uh, I think that people who just think you sign up for Dakar and go, like you might not get in. You know, they they re, they re, you know when Bill Conger talks about racing bikes, there was over 188 bikes this year. It's 127. So if they've cut 50 bikes out because they're trying to reduce logistics and reduce you know speed bumps for the cars and the golf carts and the trucks like they're, they're doing it and i don't you know i don't like i said i don't think the money's on the bikes i think they're getting the money from the four-wheeled vehicles um but, and that's that is absolutely crazy and i and you got i think it's because i see i can see the demand for the cars and for a rental program because you got somebody else with you and there's less people that know how to ride bikes and there's even less people that know to have the confidence and the skill. I see the guys on the bikes as the Cowboys. You know, these guys are, it, it takes a mentality. It takes a certain toughness 
to be able to do that. So I could see instantly where a rental program for vehicles on the side-by-sides or the golf carts is going to be popular, right? There's a lot. I mean, you see it in the States anyway. You got more people with money than brains. (laughs) It's safer. Yeah. Yeah. The side-by-side thing exploding in North America is a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's dangerous out there. And the more of them I see on fire, the happier I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I would love to see them, honestly. Like, I would really love to. So this was something that always stuck with me, um, that it was, oh, man, why I'm having trouble remembering them, the name of the company. But we used to go to the Sancho all the time. When I worked at Mendiola, they were a great, like, uh, he started building race cars, too. It was not racer. But he would not turn a customer loose with their car until they did a full day in the desert with him yeah. learning how to drive. And That's no smart. matter what request they made for gearing and what top speed they wanted, the answer was no. And it's geared this way. And this is going to be your top speed. Yeah. So that like to if they did that, if the manufacturers, I would love to see, I mean, going on a total rant here, but Yamaha Polaris Can-Am, all of these guys that are putting out side by sides in quantities, they should make a driver's academy very accessible to these guys. One, they're going to earn way more cool points with their customers and more loyalty. And two, there's going to be a statistic that's going to drop because of that. Yeah. yeah well, safe. I mean, I can only think that would make things safer for everybody. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a fan of if that's the way it's going for sure. Yeah. I just, I like to me is one of those things that it's uh, my brother races side by sides. And as much as I don't like riding in the car with him because he freaks me out, um, <laughs> he knows how to drive. Right? He, yeah. I, he, he's a shoe, but yeah. we grew up racing in the desert and we grew up with the rules and we grew up with the things that, you know, the, and, and I don't know how many times working at Mendiola, I had guys on the phone telling me that, yeah, I'm building it. This is my first sand car. Uh, I, I just wanted to talk to gearing and, you know, my customer service, like, okay, yeah, l- l- yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, tell me about the curve. Da, 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 da. And next thing you know, 700 horsepower is the first sand car they bought. And the reason it's getting 700 is because their buddy has 650 and yeah, they rode in his car and they've never yeah. driven one. Right. I mean, that's a, that was, you know, the, the flip side of that is having access to a company or an outfit like Boston car and Bart, you know, when, when we had a question like, like you were saying about the manufacturer, he knew the answer, you know, like it's okay with, with the second gen gearbox and these RFRs, this is your gearing. And, Oh, I, this has happened. And he's like, it can only be two things, you know, and, and the experience is there. The, the, the guidance is there, whether I was trying to get away from the Michelin desert race or not, it was like, look, you can't afford the option to fail. If you do, that's why we don't do it. And and that's the kind of stuff that's hard to hear, but Mm -hmm very real and good advice if you've got the you know sand cleaned out of your ears and um you know the the, yeah the experience from you know it's not really the manufacturer at this point but it's the if it's the most successful ktm satellite factory team like you need to listen to what that guy's saying like and take it in and uh and i appreciated all that so yeah i mean that and it's that's an interesting like uh, like how you're saying it, is they know they're the authority on it and and it's almost like a, a a fail safe at some point in that rally being so many days and so long yeah you're gonna get to I don't care who you are you're gonna get to the point where you're blowing bubbles no yeah no and, I know it. I know it. <laughs> and so it takes somebody like that you know like nope this is what you need to just I know you don't just yeah. no <laughs> yeah, yeah no exactly they um 
you know, the, the, so Kyle McCoy finished in 2020, mm-hmm. but he brought home his 2019 RFR mm-hmm. and that has the first gen gearbox in it. And that gearbox was very specific for South America. And it was very specific for crossing the Andes and being at, you know, some insane amount of meters, 9,000 meters or whatever, you know, looking and starving for oxygen. So it's funny, like the things you remember, right? Like, so Kyle goes out and does the prologue and he comes back and he's like, my bike makes this really weird noise when I'm on the gas. And, and in the end we figured out that it was his rev limiter. Like he's, he's banging off, you know, McCoy, the cowboy is banging off the rev limiter on the prologue. And he couldn't really do that on his old bike with his old gearbox. So as the bike he rented there had a second gen gearbox and, um, probably a little taller gearing, I'm guessing. Cause yeah, starting yeah, for a lot taller. No. So <laughs> like we, we were, we were rocking 1451 sprockets here mm-hmm. and the first gen gearbox for South America runs a third. 1949 and i think they're night and day different you know like matt sutherland knows it and he basically bought a new motor with a next gen gearbox so that he could move forward and kyle now realizes you know he he had some good things to say about the new gen Mm -hmm. gearbox and uh you know, and I think there was a quest. I think there was some talk in there with Bar, like how much does it cost to upgrade the gearbox? Like Wolfie had an old gearbox. Mm-hmm. Bar's upgraded some gearbox. You know, it's a couple thousand dollars in parts, mm-hmm. um, but um, you know, very different. One is designed for Saudi, and one is designed for South America. And um, I don't know what the point of all that was, but no, yeah, well- there's just some things. There's lots of lots of things that the the ktm satellite factory team knows and and uh it's you know it only that kind of knowledge only helps us you know if i ship my bike in a box i don't have access to all that knowledge unless i'm friends with them on a side level and mm-hmm. you know, i'm not i'm not submitting them money to to be a customer i'm kind of on the sidelines and stuff but yeah. um, the bivouac is an amazing thing you know i um uh kind of need glasses every now and then to read my manual for torque settings and stuff. And one of my screws was coming loose and I went over to the Bahrain Sebastian Loeb TRX tent, whatever it's called. And, you know, found the electrician. I was like, can I borrow your smallest screwdriver? And those guys, when they see you're like a Malimoto guy, mm-hmm. everybody just drops everything. They give you whatever you need. It's, it's awesome. Like I didn't take a screwdriver for my, my glasses, you know, and then, broke a lever off one day and everything was packed up and we were going on a marathon stage and I didn't realize that I hadn't filed the lever off before, you know, at night when I got in on my work list and Mm -hmm. I went over to a side-by-side, a golf cart tent and I was like, can I borrow a file? And, you know, they, they're scrambling to get their race car ready for their customer or whatever. Mm -hmm scenario is and just drop everything let me get you a file give me two seconds you know and so the the bivouac support scenario is just um everybody has a lot of respect for the bikes and everybody you know they might think you're crazy but like the malimoto thing is pretty well looked after and there's an unwritten code that you know you look after these people they're 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 working the hardest and in theory and 
and uh, yeah, the camaraderie is there, you know, it's good. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. And I mean, and it's like, uh, they recognize what you guys are up against and, and, yeah. and what you're doing and the, the fact that they're, you know, willing to, to help out. I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, I have so much respect for Skylar, Jacob, um, Wolfie, uh, for, I mean, you know, I, I, in theory, I'm the only one who knows what they rode through all those, all 14 stages. I mean, when you, uh, you know, you reflect back on, on how hard it was Mm -hmm. and like those guys are animals, absolute animals, like doing it at pace, doing it at speed. Wolfie had a big one day one or day two. And I think he did some ribs in and then, and then because of that, he was, he might've turned it into a back issue a couple of days later. And he was definitely not a hundred percent and he persevered, you know, like I, he worked harder than anybody. And, uh, and you know, Jacob Heron hound champion, like, I, I don't think you can take that away from him in any way. Like he's the fastest guy in the desert for whatever year he won his Heron hound championship. And, and he, you know, he's, he's in the twenties in that, race and that's just like what Skyler is doing speed wise and all the people around him in the premier class like you they must be so thankful when they get done safely with something like that because they are risking it all yeah. like there's just no way around it and you know like I, I don't think Jacob would ever have any real reason to talk to me prior to this race you know like I mean i he wouldn't know me, he wouldn't know anything. And by the end, he was just such a supportive guy and encouraging me to hang in there and that I did it. And, um, you know, the four of us, like it's this little crew that kind of made it to the finish line, you know, and I thankful for those guys, all three of them. They were, uh, they were always positive with me and, and pointing me in the right direction. And that was good. That was awesome. And I mean, yeah, and that's, it is, Dude, the car finisher. Yeah, uh, I got it. I mean, the first day, the last gas stop, I thought that I thought they were going to pull me off the course. You know, I mean, it was getting dark, and I had a long way to go, and there was a lot of rocks, and you know, I, uh, you know, I was just feel very thankful that I made it to the finish line because there was just that airbag thing, and or the uncharged airbag and you know i I thought they were going to pull me off the course i mean kind of put me through a little bit of a like systems check Mm -hmm. and you know i kind of told him to go fuck himself i mean i was like look i there's nothing wrong what do you want you know like and i wasn't i wasn't falling for the bait like it was a, a little bit of a pupil check it was a little bit of a like talk to me to tell me how you're doing so i just thought best american way is to just tell them where to stick it you know like, <laughs> well there's no option for me to ride the pavement home right now like just go eat your eat your stinky cheese and you know, <laughs> eat corn the long way i'm headed to yeah, the finish yeah, line yeah yeah and there were and there were moments too you know like i like the end of stage one you know i just finished my first Dakar stage and for me that's a an achievement and i've got a pretty long liaison back to the bivouac and definitely going to be dark by the time i get there and the camera crews at the finish you know and they're like 
do you have time for a few words? And, uh, and at this point I didn't know any better. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, okay, take your helmet off. And I'm like, Oh, this is already a mistake. You know, I don't have time for this because I'm slow. And, uh, and I take my helmet off and he's like, okay, so you're, you know, this French guy, you're the last bike to finish. How does that make you feel? And I was like, well, it makes me feel like, you know, I want to ask you whether you're from the South of France or the North of France, you know, dickhead like i don't i don't know i, I don't know like yeah. what do you want you know like I, I yeah i'm just i'm just really you know and then you i didn't say any of that you know but i'm like yeah i'm just really happy to be here and that's my first deck car stage finish and so i'm one for one and and uh you know i got out of that situation and then in the next days i just said no i'm good like i gotta get back and I get back to the bivouac and all these people want to talk. And I'm like, I don't have time for this. Like, I, I don't, I don't know you. I don't need to be interviewed. You don't want to hear what I have to say. Like I'm not creating content for you. I was on the bike twice as long as everybody else today. Like I, I don't have time, you know? Yeah. And uh, so it was a part of that was just turning the noise off. I, I had to turn, I had to stay off social media and I had to stay off, all the podcasts because I could only imagine how it was going. You know, I just wanted to stick my head in the sand, like a last in the prologue, last in stage one, pretty much last in stage two. Like I was like, this is just, I can't imagine anybody's rooting for me, you know, but you sell enough t-shirts and you put enough stickers on your bike or your sponsors. And every time you're picking it up, you know, you're doing it for them. It's a, it's like a little bit of a, a guiding force. And you know, when you're, when you're more or less self-funded, I mean, I had people helping me, don't get me wrong, but when you're more or less covering it to be sure, you know, mm-hmm. there, there, there's some kind of a sick motivation to get to the finish. I, I think that if, if I was just rolling around in it and there was money and I could go back, like, I don't know if I would have finished that race. Like, I, oh. It's the, you know, it, it's an interesting life lesson. Is yeah. you know what they say, right? Like the or you know the the some, the trust funds and the yeah. the kids that you know never had to work for the money, huh. it's easy for them to piss it away. Oh yeah. And I mean, and I mean, this obviously extrapolating from there is like, okay, well, no, this is when it's self funded. When there was so much sacrifice on the line, the word you know, you can't af- you know, it's a select few that can afford to go back more than once. It's yeah. a very select few that could even go once. So, yeah. yeah, my best, my best friend, you know, uh, had a quick chat with him the other day. He doesn't ride bikes at all. And his kids are super into what I'm doing. You know, I sent his kids some t-shirts and some stickers and they were now they're hooked on Dakar. They had no idea, but he was like, you, you going to go back next year and get a sponsor. I'm like, I don't think you understand. Like you don't get sponsored for being last. Like you don't, you don't, you know, like the, factory teams aren't calling me you know like well, what do you what sponsor are you talking about because you know like i'm i'm on my own path here with with what i've chosen to do yeah. and I don't know. what you chose to do and what you accomplished yeah yeah exactly um but it's scary when you know that you know you can't go back or if you do go back you're gonna have to you know you I remember the catalyst in making this decision. And it was when I was watching Skylar Howe's all in documentary, you know, here, here's Skylar as a privateer, completely chasing his dream and selling everything to do it. And I'm like, well, I mean, I could rearrange my life a bit, sell some stuff, you know, redo my house with the bank and go like, what's my excuse? You know, like Skylar's, you know, that, that was a, part of me making a decision like i don't really have an excuse like i i can i can steal the money for myself 
and figure it out and go. And at that point, you're chasing your dream. You know, you're you're out on a wing and, you know, you, you can't go home on stage one. It's the most, ex- that'll be the most expensive day of your life ever. You know, like, and, and then what? I got to sit around the kingdom for 14 days waiting for my flight to go home? Like, no, just, you know, get keep relentlessly moving forward. Like, yeah. just do not stop moving. And it worked, you know, I, I avoided getting pulled off the course. I avoided uh, an issue with not having my airbag charged. I made it through all of the dangerous liaisons. And, you know, at some point you got to think you're being looked after. Like you're just that you, your chips have fallen properly. Everything's aligning just, just to get you where you need to get to. Um, You know, it takes, it takes a lot. It takes a lot to get to that finish line. A lot of, a lot of interesting poker chips for sure. And, uh, I feel, I feel thankful And you know, my teammates, I'm thankful to all of them. Kyle is our veteran who's finished, you know, all of his advice was critical and, and, um, yeah, you know, we just worked, we worked well together as a team while we were together and lessons learned from that moving forward in the end. And yeah, it was good. Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely I mean, it's, it's a huge accomplishment and I, I, I didn't really realize, um, I don't know if I've honestly realized that I've made it to the finish line yet. And it's really the support of the, and the, and the good words that people are giving me that have reached out are like, I, I don't totally have words for it because I'm still honestly surprised. Like I, you know, I didn't do very well, even though that wasn't the goal, but the support and the encouragement has been completely overwhelming. And I, you know, halfway through that event, I just wanted to stick my head in the sand. I'm like, gosh, I like, I'm embarrassing USA rally. I'm North America. You know, like I, who, who wants to do this badly? Nobody, you know, <laughs> like, and you know, just, you just question everything. And like you said, you know, the bit of a tailspin and that you start the mental game. And if you're not, if you're not keeping it afloat, it can start sinking on you a bit. But uh, just really thankful to everybody who's who's given me an attaboy because uh, I probably need it. You know, as a little bit of a, a little bit of a beating in the results. I, uh, you know, I I didn't get a ton of penalties. I think I had 31 minutes in the end, or 32 minutes of penalties, and um, you know, I don't regret those. I mean, I try to avoid them, but like I. I can remember each one of them clear as a bell and I racked up some on the last day in the mud and I just wasn't going back and dealing with mud pits. I'm like, you know what? I'll just take it. Like I don't, yeah. I don't need to go lose my bike in a mud pit to capture a VCP or whatever we're calling it. Yeah. And that's, it's an interesting decision, right? Is, is this the one, you know, all the, you've avoided everything you've not avoided, but you know, you've, you've persevered through everything and, and I can totally see that decision. Is this the one that I want to go back to? Yeah, no, yeah, no. I, I, I skipped one in the dark too on stage too. I was like, I'm not going backwards into the garbage trucks, into the main line to, you know, like, no, I'll, I'll take the penalty. Like it's dark. It's yeah. not going to really affect my day. And, yeah. uh, but quickly the other way, if, if, you know, for some reason, so no, it's uh, all of that is smart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, doing the race from the beginning probably isn't smart, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, um, I mean, there were people around me in the results who had like 19 hours of penalties, you know, like I, and I'm sure some of that's mechanically related and this and that, but I mean, 
to get out of it with just 31 minutes, like I, I can, I can stomach that one. Um, you know, if it, if it had been daylight on the first one, I probably would have gone back. If it had been not muddy on the last day, I probably would have dealt with all those properly, but mm-hmm. it is what it is. I made it to the finish line and, uh, you know, happy, happy for the finish. That's all I, that's all I really got. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, and that's, it, it was encouraging to see, you know, like, uh, I mean, as you know, everybody was rooting for the team and everything that was going on. And, and yeah, I mean, there was, there's a ton of people here rooting for you. You know, people knew your name because of what you were doing and, and, and where you were at. And so the finish line was the best thing ever, you know, for, for everybody watching. And, and we kind of put that weight on it. I was like, okay, it's not about, it's, it's not about time for him. It's, it's about that finish line and yeah, spending all the time. I don't care. Again, I don't care who you are. Honestly, not to, this is by no means. I just would give question. it to him. Give it no, to no, me. no, 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 no. It's not even you. I'm trying to figure it out because I'm, I'm. I'm not trying. Like, I don't know how many people from you on up could do what you did to persevere. That you know, it. it I mean, the finish line is one thing, but you know, the times and to spend that much time out in the desert and to ride all of that stuff. Well, that's what I mean. That's, that's what some people who have done this before basically mentioned to me i mean and andrew being one of them he's like man i was looking at your times the first two or three days and like nobody should be physically be able to continue and 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 i was kind of taking it the way it wasn't intended and he kind of had to sort me out he's like mo it's a compliment like you you persevered and yeah you know you you know he's like I, i'm not saying i didn't have faith but he's just saying what what you did is basically <laughs> it could be the dumbest thing you ever did. True. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, it like, I mean, he didn't say it like that, but um, you know, it was a compliment because I was on the back foot with my time from stage one, you know, like yeah. just out there a lot whole night, you know, when, and when you talk about overall times, like 40 ish hours for the pros and 80 ish hours for me, like none of that counts liaison time. You yeah. Know? So, um, there were three 500 kilometer liaisons and, and that's the kind of stuff that, that really breaks you down. So yeah, I hear, I hear what you're saying. I, there's a lot of tough people in front of me. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say they couldn't have done the same thing, but it's just, why would you want to? <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a, instead of a resounding, yeah, they could also do it. There would be a question mark there. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Is this a good idea? Is this really fun? All that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's so, yeah, absolutely. My, uh, my hat's off on that, dude. I mean, that was, Thanks, man. <laughs> that it's just, just the finish line. I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't even, the time doesn't even matter anymore. It's just the, the, the finish line. I mean, the, the, just the time itself, the fact that you stuck with it to do that many hours to get to that finish line. But I mean, first and foremost, it's the finish line. Yeah. I mean, we trained all summer. I don't want to say all summer, but we did a lot of riding this summer and it was, it was 12 hour days, set up your tent, pass out, break your down your tent and go riding again for 12 hours. Like I'm not saying they were as hard of a 12 hours as what I just did, but like putting the body through that Mm -hmm. essentially was the training that worked for me. That rhythm. That was just, just, just the abuse. I mean, just, just endless riding and endless vibration. And then, 
and then doing it again the next day and just beating the body into submission. Like my, like I actually felt pretty good after the race. And now that it's three or four days later and I've probably been sitting around a little bit, like I'm like, I'm like, I'm. talking up but i'm not on the bike moving around using all my muscles and staying loose it's now that i'm not moving everything's starting to get stiff yeah, everything everything's relaxing now into into yeah. place <laughs> yeah the adrenaline is oozing out yeah exactly oh man dude yeah. that's oh that's awesome i i'm just Thanks, like right? i'm i'm stoked i can't wait to uh to to do a ride i mean are you how soon are you going to start riding again <laughs> riding to tierra del fuego on february 1st so we're starting a ride to the tip of south america i think we're going to do it in stages uh bought some four thousand dollar piece of junk off craigslist and uh gonna ride to either guadalajara or honduras put the bikes in storage for i don't know probably six months and then do another new do another leg down and uh you know, leave the bikes in storage again, fly home. And, uh, it seems a little soon for that, but, uh, it's organized and I think I'm going to do that. So do a two week stretch in the beginning of February and get pretty far South. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if that's the answer you were looking for, but that's the plan. Nice. No, yeah. that's good. I mean, it was signing, signing right up for the next, uh, the next adventure and that wait, February. So you're yeah, talking like, a couple of weeks from now. Yeah, less than that, ten days or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, could, could could be a mistake. I don't want to mislead. No, you, no, uh, that's the plan at the moment. And uh, yeah, gonna uh, gonna give that a go. So nice, dude. That's awesome. I, uh, I feel like I feel like I learned a lot with the Olympic trials. You know, I didn't I didn't have anything in the books after the Olympic trials, mm-hmm. and uh, and they didn't work out. And then it was just a a boat without a rudder, kind of so to speak, you know, no direction, no plan, pretty misguided. And, uh, and some other people on the, this ride that we're talking about know, know that, and they don't know about my Olympic stuff, but just having the next thing da 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 da. And I don't know if that was a catalyst for making that trip, but, um, you know, we had that talk about having something to look forward to after, you know, the big one, whatever you want to, however you want to put it. And, uh, so that was a little bit the catalyst for that. And I don't know. I I think it's good. I mean, I don't think they're going to do long days like we were just doing in Saudi, but, uh, I should be okay. I should be ready for it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, (laughs) there's a little bit more control, you know, this seems like a great place to stop. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) I, I can stop and take a picture and look at the scenery. Yeah. I've been watching the highlights and I'm like, I don't remember riding through that. I don't remember seeing all that cool stuff, you know, like, <laughs> uh, so these trips are different because you can pull over and take a leak and not worry about it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Unlike that car, they start questioning you. you we see you were stopped here for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Dude, that's awesome. Well, uh, ex- experience of a lifetime. And, uh, I, uh, appreciate you and, and you kind of, you know, get North America, organized in terms of the information it's good yeah yeah absolutely i'm looking forward to more of it i mean this year is going to be a busy year are you uh are you planning to be in at sonora rally yeah i am i yeah i'm on the fence um you know i'm gonna have to essentially buy all the ertf stuff 
which is, you know, you need some repeaters and you need a mount for the, for the brick and um, stuff like that. So if I'm not racing, I'm definitely going to volunteer in some way, whether that's be part of the sweep team or, or help the org in any way I can. I, I'll be there. I, uh, in terms of entering the race, I haven't entered yet, but there's still time and I don't know. My attitude might change in a couple of weeks. Yeah. There's the, the, uh, and I given it away, but this is all going out of order, but I actually, in a little bit, I got a, a call with, uh, Darren and we're doing an episode to talk about some of this stuff because they have the, like the, the national class. Yes. And, and I asked him about, he, Darren came over to see us off the podium. I mean, he had some other ulterior motives in promoting Sonora, but like he came onto the podium, the Starline podium to wave my start flag. And that's another highlight for me. Like I'll never forget that guy. And I appreciate that so much. And I think it's good for him to watch his little, you know, ducklings fly out in the world and all that. But I did pull him aside and I was like, Hey, look, like how do I ride the same distances as the GP riders in your race? Like what, how does that work? And like, am I in the national class or am I in rally two? And he's like, the national class is going to be shorter mileage mm-hmm. because of fuel range on a five on one gas tank or et cetera. So if you want to ride with the big boys, you have to race rally two. And I think if you want to race rally two, you're going to need an RFR and that's a whole nother, you know, the Canadians, you know, Eli Tomac, whoever, you know, they want to race, Sonora and learn as much as they can and get ready for Dakar. Like you need to be calling one of the big teams right now to get your bike. Like I saw that Boz Dakar has one bike to rent left for Sonora and they're air freighting over all of their equipment. And, uh, you know, they're not bringing any trucks and they're, I had talked with Bard about helping him with logistics. And I don't think I can because I don't really have a way to tow a trailer, but that's an option for somebody in North America if they wanted to see that race and make a little bit of money if they had a, a crew cab and a big box trailer and wanted to do logistics from one of the satellite factory teams. But um, I'm, get, I'm getting distracted. But I, the national class is, um, you know, going to be the four and a half to five point three gallon tanks and a little bit shorter of a race course. And I, I, I'm pretty sure that you don't have to run an FIM spec tire. Mm-hmm. Um, which is all great news and you can run your 501 and I think they call it rally three. Um, I'm not totally sure, but uh, yeah, if I wanted to, you know, continue with what I'm doing this year, I already have my FIM license, which is a big thing required to race rally two. I have my rally bike here, but I'd have to peel off my North American rally equipment and put on kind of the rally two level, you know, a couple repeaters and way to mount all of the organization stuff. Um, and it sounds like it's a thousand dollars cheaper to race the rally three or the national class than the the rally two class. So I don't really think it's going to be, uh, an eliminator for the North American rally light bikes. Like I I think your, I think your cost is right where it needs to be. And I think the course is going to be a little bit friendlier. Mm -hmm. And people shouldn't be scared off. You know, I, um, no. I think, I think Darren's going to, I think Darren's honestly legitimately going to look after 
everybody who's supported him in the past with that kind of racing. Yeah, I, I agree with that. He, you know, that was something that was very clear in every conversation we had once the news broke that he was going to be around that, you know, he was very clear that, you know, he didn't want the Sonora rally to lose its flavor that it already has and lose the competitors that it already has at the same time that the internet was going off saying, you know, there goes this yeah. event. And, yeah, yeah. and so I think he's, he's done a pretty good job. That's I'm looking forward to this conversation and, and, and getting that out on air because it's the people that really know and that really cared already know there is a home for them still. And, and so yeah. it's just some people, I just want to, I want to reiterate that he's really going to look after, you know, the national class. I, I don't think, I don't think there's a concern there. And, uh, unlike, the French, I actually believe Darren, um, the one variable, not that it has nothing to do with anything, but the road books are now written by the ASO characters. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a different flavor. Oh, I think yeah. that everybody's used to, and, and I don't, maybe, I don't know if the national class will be different. I don't think it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but the national class road books will be based off gas stops and gas range. And, um, and I don't know if you guys haven't seen one of these French ASO roadbooks, they are no joke. Like you need to start studying. I don't know. Uh, you need to be on point. <laughs> need to be on point. And, and I asked about it. I asked about distances. I was like, so we do Sonora, like, are there 500 kilometer liaisons and, you know, 400 kilometer stages? And they're like, yeah, you should expect that. It's not going to be, well, at least for rally two, right. But you, you shouldn't expect, um, you shouldn't expect, uh, short days if you're in the rally two or GP class. Yeah. I think they're, they're going to be pretty real. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'll be, yeah. uh, I'll be down there as well. So, yeah, I, uh, I have to say that if, you know, you're, if you're in North America and, and I haven't scared you away from all this stuff yet, that you should seriously consider doing Dan's ride on St. Patrick's day in the Mojave desert, uh, four days of road books. Looks like he's got a registration link now, but that was really my start into this whole thing. I mean, he, he's a bad man, you know, like he, he's, part of the reason he is one of the reasons that you know i'm in this mess eight years later like i i went to his socal rally event as a qualifier for baja rally i was too cheap to pay for a baja rally training class so i think dan essentially organized the socal rally to actually beat that rule and be supportive for people and um you know if you want to get some road books under your belt and see what a bivouac is like and Camping in the dirt, I, I highly recommend that being your springboard. And then next one after that is, you know, if you can get into the Wyoming Tulip Festival, you know, that that's another good one in July. Uh, or is it the end of June? End of June. June. Uh, um, you know, and obviously if you need to, if you live on the East Coast, Wyoming's a lot closer than California, so maybe you do that one. But you can't just go to Dakar. Like you have to go and do these events. You have to do Sonora. You have to do Sonora rally training school. Anytime you can go to a rally comp training scenario in El Paso, those are like gold and there's so much sand there. And you know, you're, you're with some really good mentors in that scenario. And, um, uh, so yeah, 
I mean, if you're going to lay out a little bit of a road roadmap, roadbook for people, SoCal Rally, Wyoming Tulip Festival, Rallycom training in El Paso, Sonora Rally Dunes training, Sonora Rally, you know, not, none of that stuff should be missed. You need all of the knowledge gained at those events. There's, there's nothing, uh, there's no skipping around it. You know, you, there's no shortcuts. Yeah. Yeah. If you, you know, it's, I always, uh, I have that, that overthinking mentality and, you know, that, that taking that first step and, and, you know, like what you're saying is, yeah, is here's the first step. Just do this first. You know, yeah, it's free. It's free. Like, uh, it, I mean, uh, maybe a case of IPA or whatever he drinks, but you know, Dan, Dan's thing. Um, I mean, if, if you had asked those guys after day one of me being there, if I was ever going to go to Dakar, they all would have spit their drink on the ground and laughed at you. You know, like I learned so much about what needs to happen at those events and, and, and Scott Bright's training events too. I didn't mean to leave that out, but I mean, there's, you know, what, what you learn at those things is how to read a note in a, in a road book and, and how to navigate and get into a flow and, and, you know, there's always room for improvement and everybody's road books are different. So the more access you get to them, the better off you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I could go on and on and on about that, but Dan's awesome. And he writes a really good road book and I highly recommend it. And, um, you know, I hope to see some people there. I, feel like that could be my next riding, uh, with a road book for sure. Uh, I can't, I can't do Sonora Dunes rally training. I'm working, but, uh, hope to see everybody at SoCal rally. And, uh, thanks to Dan for all the hard work. Cause I don't think anybody realizes how hard it is to write a bunch of road books. I think he's got somebody else helping him with road books this year. So hats off to him as well. Um, but those, those guys are out there crunching it and, all the road books just got ruined by rain, I'm sure. So they have to probably now they got to go out, redo everything. But. Yeah, new safeties and all that stuff. Yeah, I've actually, um, I haven't really told anybody, I guess, on the air and and you first, but that was, uh, I was actually thinking of signing up for that. You sh- you should. I, I will I will ride with you every day. I mean, I, I I feel like that's the kind of event where you team up with somebody who's been there and you do it. And, uh, it'd be great. I think yeah. you should. And I, I'm super supportive of that. And, uh, you know, I'm also super happy to see that David Manriquez, the man we call NAR has signed up for Baja rally. It's like, finally you, you should be racing, you know, you, know. you should be doing it. So Although I, it, uh, it was funny. I want to I, I see you guys out there. It's good. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to it. I'm like, all right, I got the 501. I'm almost done with the motor minded tower on it, doing all that stuff. So it's getting really close. And now I'm like, okay, I think I can, I think I can do it. And it, and it's funny that you mentioned Nara a, a few minutes ago, he literally called in and, and interrupted the, <laughs> I sent him a text. I'm like, dude, I'm on the phone with Mo. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I gotta, I gotta reach out to Dan and, and, uh, and see what's the deal on that one. And, um, and yeah, and, and just try and make some time for it. It's going to be, you know, it's interesting. I mean, there's, uh, if you want to get into rally, North America will keep you busy. Oh yeah. You don't need don't to go to it, Dakar. I don't think it was always that way. I don't no. think it was always like a, a calendar conflict all the time with this and that rally and everything else. But like there, there's a way to, there's a way to, you know, do a race in the spring, do a race in the fall, do a session in the summer. Like it's all there. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can't afford to go to those three, four events, like, I don't know how you're going to get to Dakar. Yeah. So I don't know what your excuse is, but it's time to start writing road books and 
and put your head down. I mean, I, you know, and all of this stuff is on a scale of one to 10, like you're messing around at a two or a three based on what a Dakar stage is. People have told me that and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's true. (laughs) Confirmed. You take, you take your, I mean, just to transfer. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's <laughs> the, the, the liaisons are longer than stages in North America. I, that was, uh, I remember it was one of the years at Baja rally. Somebody was complaining about the liaisons being very long. Mm. And then somebody else that had been to Dakar and goes, you have no idea what you're complaining <laughs> you about. No idea. <laughs> and I, and I have to say that like, you know, I, I mean, I, chose to be as hard on myself as I could all year training on my RFR at all these events that my 501 would have been better at. And I'm really glad that I did, but on the liaisons, I was always pretty nice to my RFR. Like I, I didn't really ring it out. I mean, it is a single cylinder 450, right? But you go to Saudi Arabia, you rent a bike, the speed limit on the liaisons is 130 kilometers an hour. I think that's close to 81 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I can tell you right now that I'm a lot more comfortable doing 80 on the pavement with a 450 single cylinder than I was when I went. And you're doing it for 500 kilometers, just, you know, like you're just, you're just ripping down the road, doing 80 miles an hour on a single Mm -hmm. and, and the bike does it all day long. Like, you know, if uh, Johnson's kind of turned some old RFRs into adventure bikes. And I now realize why it's such a great bike for that. Um, you know, maybe even better than my 701. My 701 is a lot more comfortable, but the RFR will do it all day long. And I, you know, you talk about supposed to keep your speed under 70 to make the moose survive and all that shit. Well, it doesn't matter. The RFR just eats it up and the desert race tire, the carcass can handle the heat. The desert race Baja carcass, maybe not, but, um, yeah, 80 miles an hour for 500 kilometers, a couple pee breaks, bike never blinks. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't really want to be that mean to my bike at home, but it'll do it. It'll, yeah. uh, and I didn't really know it could do it over and over and over, but it can. Well, and you know, it was interesting cause that's the, that's the question I was like, I'll, I'll wait to ask him later in the day. But it, that was one of the things I was considering. I'm like, well, if there's the chance to purchase a bike, an RFR, right? Is it something that I like bet the farm on, right? Sell the 501, sell the 790 and put an RFR in the garage. Yeah. And make yeah. that my, you need, you, need, you need to stock spare parts. That's the, uh, how do I, so in my RFR experience in North America, mm-hmm. it's not super easy to get parts. So, I now have fuel pumps and a spare set of wheels and I have, you know, I learned about a couple things that I want to have in stock after Dakar. It's this check valve for the rear tank. Like you got to have one of those mm-hmm. and you got to have injectors. And so I'm slowly building up the parts that are consumable and, and do fail. And, you know, if you don't have those around, um, it can take months to get them from Europe and they're not really lying around the U S you know, like I'm pretty sure the KTM parts truck will be at Sonora or I hope it will be anyway. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you could probably stock up there and have access to parts if you need it for the race. But that is the one concern about turning it into a proper adventure touring bike is, you know, you're not going to go into the ACE or the KTM shop and XYZ and 
they're not going to have that part behind the counter, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so sounds like, and that was my, that was kind of my concern. And then I started thinking, okay, well then, then comes the, okay, well, you could pretty much buy because we all know the 450 RFR started life as a 690. And yes. So yes. you know, then you go, okay, well, 701. And well, that's the thing. That's the, I almost dropped everything a couple months ago. So a a 690 RFR popped up in Austria for 25,000 euros, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Gosh, that's the bike. That's that's the bike for." you know, adventure riding in North America. Like my, it's, it's like my 701, but it's easier to work on and it carries more fuel. Mm-hmm. I mean, these, these RFRs are so well thought out, Victor, you, you can, you can do a motor in like 10 minutes. That's you know, crazy. It's, it's four bolts. It's a trellis frame. Everything is thought about accessibility. When I want to do something to my 701 LR, like mm-hmm. take a gas tank off, it is an ordeal. And mm-hmm. the RFR is just made to service, made to, yeah, work on and made to take apart to clean and and um you know that kind of reliability or or accessibility i should say is is dreamy Mm -hmm. compared to working on my 701 yeah yeah Uh, i got somebody who wants my 701 and i'm like yeah i'd probably just get another rfr so i have some spare parts lying around yeah let's pick another one up yeah that's i mean that's it's tough for me because that's the like i see you know, man, I, I hate to say, but it's like, you, I think with that being said, it's almost, I'm like, yeah, I, I think a 701 would be the, you know, I could, I could ditch the 501, I could ditch the 790. And then that's the one, you know, the one bike. Cause right now it's split between the two. I mean, the, the 501 is light enough to be able to ride it anywhere, do whatever with it. And the 790 is good because, you know, Hey, if I want to jump on the highway for a hundred miles, you know, yeah. or commute to work on it, it'll do it. It's happy doing whatever. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I you know, there's a there's an RFR in Switzerland for sale for twenty one thousand euros, and it's never done Dakar. It's got one hundred and three hours on it. And then there's a Dakar in England. I'm sorry. There's an RFR in England for sale for thirty one thousand euros that only has twenty three or thirty two hours on it. Never done Dakar. You know, I mean, they're out there. Yeah. Um. You know, getting into the states is a whole nother yeah, issue. whole nother ball game. Our conversation, but uh, I don't know. Hopefully, we see more of them. You know, I took this video of all the RFRs at the finish of the race and the shipping crates, and I mean, when you see a hundred of them, you're just like, "That's a lot of money." You know, yeah. like it's, I'll, I'll send it to you. It's funny, it's crazy, uh, and it's funny. There was a one guy there on a on a four hundred and fifty cc Husqvarna FE. 450 and you know like my rally bike rfr looks pretty out of place at sonora or baja rally like it's 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 the ugly duck not the ugly duckling but it's out of place right Mm -hmm. and over there there's just so many rfrs that when you see a proper enduro bike you're like wow that looks weird Uh, you know just the the roles reverse it's funny i have the the dakar website up in the background and they have this scrolling uh, scrolling picture thing at the top with the highlights and whatnot. And there's a yeah. picture of the uh, original uh, class, like the Motul pit area for you guys for the Malamoto thing. And I can see that. <laughs> I can yeah, see that, that bike. bike. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a white, white one. He's got yeah. the rear, he's got that rear Italian gas tank on it. And I, I'm pretty sure he made it to the finish line with that thing. It, it didn't want to start every day, but, uh, <laughs> but he made it to the finish line. And nice. Anyway. 
I've got a lot of people to thank and I, I probably uh, will forget most of them if I start on some of them, but everybody who helped, thank you. And all the companies that helped ARO, thank you. And uh, all the people who cheered for me and bought a t-shirt and, you know, got some stickers and stuff. I can't thank you enough. And, uh, you know, you, that kind of support gets, gets somebody like me through something like that. So more, more mentally than anything. So, uh, appreciate everybody. And, uh, I'd love to start rattling names and things off, but I'll insult somebody by forgetting you all know who you are. Yeah. No, no. But yeah. And I, and I appreciate you taking the time and, and, and hanging out and talking and, and sharing yeah. your adventure. I mean, that's, no, that's I, awesome. I appreciate you, Victor, and look forward to doing some road books together. That sounds good. I'm glad you're uh, ponying up and thanks for making it public knowledge because now everybody else is going to encourage you too. <laughs> yeah. I think I might've just started a chain reaction. <laughs> yeah, good, good one. Good, yeah. Good. But I appreciate it. And, and Mo, one more time, man. Congratulations. I appreciate that, Victor. Thanks for everything. And, uh, I, uh, I appreciate it more than you know. So thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll see you soon. All right. All right bud. See ya. Bye. Bye. All right. There you have it. Number one Oh five in the 2023 Dakar in the originals by Motul class and Dakar finisher Mohart. That was awesome. I mean, so many little things and, and I mean, and there's more, I mean, this is going to be like, the conversation for the next year or more. And there's going to be every time that conversation comes up, there's going to be something new and, and, and different about it. So I'm absolutely excited uh, to spend some time in the bivouac with these guys and, and talk a little bit more about it uh, and bring you guys some of the adventures. So with that being said, guys, remember, it'll make sense when you get there. Enjoy the ride. All right, that is a wrap for the Chasing Waypoints podcast this week. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you like what you heard. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and a bunch of others. Also, follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook under Chasing Waypoints, Instagram, Chasing Waypoints underscore official, and, of course, the YouTube under Chasing Waypoints. Hope everybody has a good week. We will see you guys for the next episode. Remember, shiny side up. And don't forget to tag us. We want to see where you guys are riding and what you guys are up to. Have a great week. Peace.